All right, this is Darker Days Radio, episode number 77. I'm, of course, one of your hosts here, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by quite an array of great folks here, joining me, of course, on International Tabletop Day to record this episode. So first up, we, of course, have Chris. Chris, how's it going? Okay, it's been a busy few months, because I haven't been on the show for a while. Lots of stuff going on. Uh, What have we done? Um, Lots of things. We'll talk about that in a bit. And of course, uh, joined by Chig. How's it going, Chig? Pretty good, Mike. How you doing? Oh, not bad, not bad. And then we got Matt. How's it going, Matt? It's going all right. All right, good. Don't so, oversell it, Matt. <laughs> let's talk a little bit what gaming we've been doing, because I really want to talk to Chris about Warhammer for some reason. He's not really <laughs> playing Warhammer. It's just he's painting a lot of stuff. I'm painting a lot of stuff. Uh, let's think. So last time I was on the show was, I can't remember. So in that time, what's gone on? Uh, I've seen some of the edits of what's going on for the Beast of War uh, Kingdom Death Let's Play. So the next five um, ep- kind of episodes of that. Um, we are getting some really cool custom artwork uh, done for that to represent all the characters that appear in that game so they are going to town on the um the video for that let's think war gaming wise gene steel cult painted that for shadow war because shadow war sold sold out fucking everywhere in no time mm-hmm. so yeah. that's basically necromunda but using you know if you're high if you're fighting in the hives of the uh, of of um armageddon during what the second great second war of armageddon I think, third war of armageddon yeah. Whichever, yeah, and you you know, you're, you're you're fighting in this confined area where it's you know factories and and so forth and and um, you're basically playing kill teams, but of course kill team using the current Warhammer 40k rules are shite, so uh, they decided, hey, let's use Necromunda Second Edition. So now the cool thing is we actually have rules for quite a few factions that never existed in Warhammer second edition because necromunda second edition is based on war warhammer second edition which is where i got started so we actually have rules for dark eldar and all their weapons for second ed mm. it also means gene stealer cult that are updated using the new rules that they did and the new miniatures they did but for the using the old rule system which of course means we can use gene stealer cult in necromunda now because i couldn't get a copy of the game but i've got tons of scenery as it is i went off on a little routing around ebay and picked up a near pristine copy of gorka morka which is based upon necromunda and is orcs basically doing mad max style fighting with vehicles and everything and that's freaking awesome because i had that game like when it came out and then you know over the intervening years lost everything you know you part ways with stuff and this time around it's like i'm gonna do it properly because you know when you're 30 something and you've got you're not going to game as much you're going to put your time into getting the scenery and, and miniatures painted up and everything and uh yeah pretty much everyone locally is excited to play some gorka morka excellent excellent yeah gorka morka is a phenomenal game that really didn't get as much uh care and attention as i felt it should have back in the day so that's pretty uh cool that you picked up a copy and you're ready to dive right into it also of course i've been playing some uh shadow uh, was it um uh, Gangs of Kamara, which is the um, Dark Eldar um, jet bike Hellions gang fighting, uh, which again is it's a bit kind of X-wingy like, but 
not quite so X-wingy like. It's a bit more like Gorkamorka and some uh, what was it, Wings of Glory or whatever, some old you know dog fighting game, uh, and that's really good fun. So again, I'm going to backport the Dark Elder, um, the Dark Elder Shadow War rules to create Hellions and jet bikes in Gorkamorka because. You're Dark Eldar, you're looking to do some slave you know, slave raids. Where else are you gonna turn up but on some backwater orc world and, you know, chase them down on your jet bikes. So that'll be good fun. Yeah. I think there actually were some fan rules for Dark Eldar as well that you can check out. I think so. Uh, and then of course I've actually done some roleplay because um I've been trying to get my group ready to play some Geist. That's taking a bit more time. I might push them on that this weekend. Um, but we played a one shot of the terrible tale of James Magnus. But I re I rejigged it so uh, all the group were basically playing European ghost hunters from whatever part of Europe they wanted to do an accent from, um, <laughs> and. I restyled the the mansion of James Magnus to be a bit more brutalist kind of 80s kind of architecture, you know, that kind of Miami Vice horrible, you know, Miami Vice style kind of like mansion you think of, but, you know, it's run down so it looks more like a uh, an asylum or prison uh, internally. And we did that. And I tried my hardest to kill some of the characters off because it's a one shot, but they survived, meaning... I might do a follow-up where now they know the supernatural really, really does exist, they might try and do some more ghost hunting somewhere else in the US. Sweet. I like it. Cool. And uh, Chig, can you follow up that? Uh, have you been doing any gaming or war gaming lately? I have not been doing any war gaming lately. Um, however, my gaming group did wrap up our Torg Classic game. <gasps> yeah. Yeah, just in time for the uh, for their Kickstarter to uh, be delayed again for their new version. <laughs> um, we have since begun a Rifts Savage World game, which uh, combines one of the uh, worst settings with uh, one of the worst rule sets. But somehow, <laughs> oh. somehow, um, it is surprisingly better than uh, the two individually. I don't know what's going on there, but I'm I'm enjoying it. So hey, we have another game scheduled for uh, this evening because it's uh, International Tabletop Day. Ooh, cool! I like it. And uh, Matt, how about yourself? What kind of gaming have you been doing? Um, no tabletop gaming, sadly. I it's mostly just uh, video gaming, and uh, but that's just been you know World of Warcraft and Hots. Heroes of the Storm, and I got a Switch, but don't have any games for it yet. What? You got the Switch, but you didn't get any games? I don't have many games. Oh, oh, oh okay. That's Sorry, I having none. <laughs> I uh, kind of want to get a Nintendo Switch, and here's why. Because I could be playing Skyrim, when that comes out for the Switch, on the train. Just like going around the city, playing some Skyrim, you know, fighting skeletons or whatever. Miss my stop. Have to travel around on the train some more. Keep playing Skyrim. It'll be great. I, I'm really excited about it. I'm honestly kind of surprised at how small it is. Like, it's thinner and smaller than the Wii U gamepad, even. But the screen is bigger. Cool. And, uh, yeah, for myself, uh, just been playing some D&D. Uh, nothing too fancy. And I think that's pretty much the extent of my tabletop gaming. 
I don't know. I've been working a whole lot, so you know that kind of gets in the yeah. way, that sort of thing. But uh, you know, we got some real cool stuff coming up here, uh, which you should probably go and talk about in the news segment. But before we get to the news, just want to tell you guys, uh, listeners out there, what we are going to be talking about today. Uh, of course, we're going to be talking about the classic Wraith the Oblivion book, Love Beyond Death. Uh, we'll also be discussing the Demon Storyteller's Guide for Demon the Descent, and then Conquering Heroes for Beast the Primordial. And the other cool note is that uh, tomorrow is Walpurgis Noct, which is uh, quite a strange, bizarre day, uh, holiday in, uh, in Germany and around the world. Mm-hmm. I'm running a party uh, for it tomorrow because we decided that we needed a Halloween in spring. Um, cool. So Valkyrgis Noct or uh, Hexenoct, as it's also known, uh, sounded like a good idea. So we're going to watch, um, I think we're watching Suspiria, uh, The Witch, and The Void uh, tomorrow night while drinking some apple brandy earl grey tea based warm cocktail thing that uh i found a recipe for Ooh. um yeah and some vodka is in there as well because you know <laughs> <laughs> why not? uh okay yeah. so so valpurgis nuts because i just brought it up on on the wiki just so we can explain so it's a festival that's uh in most countries that celebrate it uh mainly in germany and you know it's european in that way so czechoslovakia i believe czech republic you know um, named after an English mission, uh, missionary called St. Uh, Valperger. Uh, this feast is held on the 1st of May, and uh, she became associated with May Day, especially in Finnish and Swedish calendars. The eve of May Day, traditionally celebrated with dancing, came to be known as Valpurgisnacht, or uh, also known as Hexenacht, or Witch's Night in uh, German. Uh, it's also... The Germanic term was recorded in 1668, uh, and, uh, yeah, so what do they do? Let's have a look. Um, what do people do around the world when they do it? Young people gather around on the tops of hills, burning things, you know, so it's kind of like that driving away the winter because it is the last, you know, the last tendrils of winter uh, holding on. Uh, people, Young people gather around. Sudden black and dense smoke formations are cheered from as they uh, emerge from the blaze um, as, uh, as they're considered to be a witch flying away. Uh, uh, as evening advances to midnight um, and the fire is on the way, it's time to go search for a cherry tree in blossom and young women should be kissed past midnight uh, during the following day under a cherry tree. They will not dry up for an entire year, apparently. Is that yeah. the tree or the woman? Um, uh, the first day, of, and then first day of May is celebrated. Um, and there's some similar things like that. People dressing up as witches on, on this uh, May day, uh, drinking various amounts of alcohol, uh, in Germany, it's celebrated in Brocken. Again, they meet on Brocken Mountain that holds revels with the devil. Uh, so, yeah, there's a whole lot of, you know, celebrating witches and uh, driving away the darkness and celebrating the coming of actual, you know, spring and things to do with eggs as well. So it's also got kind of very traditional, mostly the, a lot of the stuff that's also a forerunner to Easter, I guess, in some of the um, traditions there as well, or at least May Day traditions, which, again, have been co-opted by the uh, Christian church. And I think with the fun historical fact, we should probably move on over to...
Alright, so we have a lot of cool stuff that has happened and is coming up. So I guess we'll first start off here with uh, White Wolf Publishing. Um, White Wolf actually released the new Dark Pack rules, which are sort of a, just kind of fan ga- guidelines uh, for how to basically interact with the intellectual property of the World of Darkness. So they're actually very similar to the previous uh, Dark Pack rules. Less in some ways, they're a bit less restrictive, but in other ways, they are more restrictive. And fortunately or unfortunately for us, they specifically target like fan-made print material, uh, PDFs, and like fan sites. Uh, but there's really nothing there about podcasting or any kind of audio medium. So they they don't really affect us. But no. Uh, We'll probably yeah. just kind of try to stick to what they recommend and uh, shouldn't have any problems. Because we don't reproduce material, you know, that can easily be accessed. I think that's the main the main point, isn't it? It's material that's printed or or some such that right. it limits how much you can reproduce from books, doesn't it? Or, or cite mm, from books? It's very, very vague. Like- so the previous Dark Pack rules said that you could only reproduce something like 300 words at a time and not more than a thousand words in whatever you were making like an article or on your website or something so it was pretty restrictive and very specific and now it's a bit more like just don't like put books on the internet that sort of thing so that's uh, one of the ways that's less restrictive but it's also more restrictive because they're very very particular about how you can collect money or actually just you can't there's there's no money collections no getting donations or anything like that and i mean all all four of us were pretty active on shadow in essence back in the day that's uh that fan site and message board and you guys probably remember that they couldn't have ads on there under the old dark pack rules so they had to rely on donations basically to uh you know keep the servers running that sort of thing uh and under the new dark pack rules that's no longer allowed quite specifically uh, so that's kind of one of the unfortunate ways that it's, you know, more restrictive. So you can't do ads and you can't do donations either? Yep. It's pretty much, I, from what I see, has to be all out of pocket. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that really, I mean, for podcasts, does that really affect podcasts? I mean, I mean, for us, we're not reproducing any material in in any way. We're simply doing reviews and talking about products and interviewing people so in no ways are we are we trying to profit off we're not directly profiting off making game material available to anyone or any in any way like that or you know we're the the only way we make any you know with donations if we do get donations and stuff is because we Uh, review and we don't review games other than world of darkness review other stuff so we're kind of generic like that right yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, the other thing is that we just don't ask for donations anymore. We actually got rid of the uh, the, uh, the PayPal thing, yeah. so we're basically unaffected. It's it's no issue at all. Um, I just kind of feel bad for you know certain fan sites that you know have large server bills, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah. that's that's kind of unfortunate. Uh, but you know, as I mentioned in other ways, the new rules are kind of nicer. So you know, they exist. You should check them out uh, if they affect you. And that's kind of just why we're bringing this up uh, for anyone that is involved with, you know, fan communities, LARPs, or anything like that, uh, just to kind of know what the new rules are and any changes. And in addition to that, so White Wolf actually released these new uh, quiz apps, these little games which you can uh, test your your knowledge uh, of the World of Darkness uh, under a, you know, kind of timed system to see uh, how good your score is. 
Uh, I haven't really checked these out too much, but they seem fine. Uh, I know Pete, uh, our faithful Australian correspondent, uh, has uh, checked out one of these, and you know he seemed to think it was okay. And uh, yeah, it's definitely something you should uh, check out if that's what you're into. Cool. And uh, yeah, we also have, uh, of course, Onyx Path Publishing uh, putting out some new role-playing game material. Specifically, they have put out some cool stuff for Vampire the Masquerade. You know, they have a new V20 Lore of the Bloodlines. Uh, this is a follow-up to the Lore of the Clans book and is chock full of cool information uh, regarding the different uh, rare bloodlines, you know, the Nagaraha and uh, the Samidi, for example, in Vampire the Masquerade. So some pretty cool stuff there. And uh, I got a copy. I like it. Oh, cool. Yeah. And in addition to that, uh, they also put out Hunter Tooth and Nail, which is a beast-themed hunter book. And Matt has some comments on that one, doesn't he? <laughs> well, it's my understanding of it is that it was written before the finalized version of Beast had been done, along with one of the other books we're going to be reviewing today. So it's a little bit out of sorts, but it does introduce three new hunter compacts, one of which is basically a support group for supernatural creatures who want to try to come to terms with who they are without turning into monsters. And they rather specifically hate beasts unless the beast is like truly repentant and trying to figure out how to feed without hurting people. Okay. Um, The other one is um, a bunch of kids who've been experimented on by the government to turn them into dream fighters to war against beasts. That one was written by David Hill, I believe. Yes. Um, I think, so it's basically a riff off um, the kind of Nightmare on Elm Street idea that the kids can finally turn the tables on um, Right. On Freddy Krueger, yeah. But, like, the, basically they um, like, they escaped with a van and some wheelchairs and are now going around the country killing beasts. And then there's <laughs> the third one which is a group of religious cultists who think that beasts are sent by God and that heroes are actually evil and that heroes are bad because they cause collateral damage and kill innocents. So they specifically only hunt heroes and (laughs) kill any of their member that even accidentally kill a beast. Right. Yeah. That's a, it's a little harsh and restrictive there um, in, in, their outlook yeah it's kind of this reminds me of some of the uh more problematic uh, uh kind of sex and organizations and supernatural relationships that we had in the uh classic world of darkness you know saying that specifically vampires don't hate werewolves and vice versa and they never work together it seems very restricted to the story to have that kind of like a hard cutoff so like with the first group that you mentioned um I would I would just simply change them uh, to make it that they don't hate beasts. They uh, are quite willing to work with them. However, maybe they understand that there's uh, quite a bit of danger, you know, in working with these uh, types of of. Well, no, this is like they're willing to work with the beasts who want to change, but hmm. like the beasts who actively like they're a support group. So like they're dealing with people like PTSD and like people who were victims of beasts doing horrible things to them like they support both mortals and supernaturals and if a mortal comes to them it's like i keep having these horrible nightmares where i keep getting eaten then they're going to be like okay there's somebody out there we need to kill Hmm. Mm. okay interesting all right that that does sound uh 
like something I would use. However, with the the latter one, with the uh, specific church, no, I guess that does kind of work. They're called the Reckoners, and it's like like the entire book is like the um, opening parts of the book is very insistent that you know you're supposed to be hunting heroes and leave beasts alone because beasts are a protagonist splat. And but then it gets That's... into the then it gets into the other compacts and they're like, no, no, we want to kill the hell out of beasts. <laughs> hmm. That that is very <laughs> inconsistent. Um I mean with all the, the hunter books they I mean, that's kind of the point of Hunter the Vigil, Hunter the Reckoning, is that you usually are directly opposed to what are typically, I guess, protagonist anti-hero splats that you usually play as. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it sounds like it's a bit of a mixed bag, but there's there certainly seems to be some cool ideas in there. Um, definitely uh, something neat to check out uh, if people are interested in a little more beast material or how, you know, hunters would interact with the, uh, the additional setting elements. You know, could be cool stuff. So what else do we have? Cursed Necropolis Rio uh, is out for Mummy the Cursed. And um, it's pretty cool. I mean, I think this is our first city book in South America ever for World of Darkness or Chronicles of Darkness. Correct me if I'm wrong here, guys. But um, oh, we had Rage Across the Amazon. Oh, we had, I just remembered it. We had it. Mexico for Vampire the Requiem. That's that's North America, luckily. But uh, oh well, yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I th- just just I think for technicality. the Amazon was okay, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. It existed. I've not looked at Curse Necropolis yet, but I'm excited to see what's in there. So, what was wrong with the? How was the werewolf one? Yeah. Um. No, I think like as far like compared to the other Rage Across books, I think it was just fine. Like it actually presented. I think like Gogol Fangs first was probably like the first werewolf character that was actually, you know, hey, we need to be conciliatory about the War of Rage. We need to work with these other people. We need to, you know, be working for Gaia instead of against her. And like that was, you know, rather of a landmark for that kind of book because this was, you know, early werewolf where they were all idiots all the time and incredibly antagonistic towards everyone. And yeah. Yeah, Rage Across the Amazon is also very well received because it just like brought in so many cool elements of the werewolf, uh, you know, background into one setting. So there's a lot of like combat, you know, fighting over the Amazon against you know Pentex forestry teams and you know these these soldiers that they have basically deployed in Fomori. So you get that kind of uh, you can get rocks off with uh, the kind of action scenes and all that. But there's all these different um, changing breeds that are in the setting as well. They get to interact with. And it brings together all these uh, werewolves from different parts of the world. And um, I'm not sure if it's it's the best Rage Cross book, but uh, definitely a lot of people really hold it up to you know very high standards. And uh, the concept of the book is basically that all of the seps around the world will like send werewolves to the Amazon as like kind of like the Foreign Legion almost. Like, this is an important war, so we need to send you guys there. And then Golgol Fangs first is a get of Fenris who's currently in charge of the war in the Amazon. And he's not made peace with, but he's, like, working with the Balaam and the Mokle. And, like, the Balaam will basically, like, leave, like, heavily wounded but still alive Pentex soldiers in, in the Guru camps to be interrogated for information and stuff like that. I want to point out that it is also the uh, debut of my favorite totem, 
clashing boom boom, the uh, stealth bomber totem. <laughs> what? <laughs> clashing boom boom is actually one of the main Glasswalker totems now. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> he's he's literally yeah he yeah um since you asked he, he's bas- he's basically a modern war spirit. Yeah, he's a he takes the form of a stealth bomber. And uh, if he is your totem, you can uh, summon him for air support to come and literally bomb your enemies. It is a for real thing. <laughs> wow. And if and if what I've gathered from what's been leaked about the new werewolf stuff, he might be the new uh, Glasswalker tribal totem. Nice. Because he's because he's the uh, totem of the DS Ultimate, I believe. Uh-huh. And they're apparently the camp that's in charge now. It's not the random in- random interrupts. Oh, that's a, that'll be a change. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, it's not a change I'm fond of because it's Whatever. also them changing their name to the Silicon Sentinels. Everybody likes alliteration. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, so Curse Necropolis, Rio. Good stuff. You should check it out if you want some more uh, material for Mummy the Curse. Yeah, and then in addition to that, uh, what else do we have? Oh, so for Scion, they, uh, they, Onyx Path released for April Fool's Day. Uh, Frost Giant Butt Warriors, which I have not checked out, but uh, I think it, a lot of people were excited like about three, it. It's like a three-page Chuck Tingle book. Oh, okay. Like, like it, it's, not a, it's not a full novel. It's not a rule supplement. It's basically three pages out of a Chuck Tingle book. They're hilarious pages, but yeah. Matt, if you All need right. more than three pages of Frost Giant Butt Warriors, then you're doing something wrong. It is full enough, I assure you. Nice. I like it. And then finally, uh, they have their Kickstarter for The Prince's Gambit, which is a Vampire the Masquerade social card game. Uh, wildly successful on Kickstarter. Uh, I think it just ended, or it's going to end in the next couple of days. Um, but yeah, it seems like a lot of people were pretty excited about that. Uh, <clears throat> so... There you go. Did any of us back that? Uh, nope. No. <laughs> okay. And uh, yeah, also, uh, Chris and I are going to be at World of Darkness Berlin uh, for the uh, you know cool convention that's going to be going on there in, geez, like 10 days or something, yeah, 11 days. Yeah, it's, it starts on the 11th and ends on the 14th. I think they extended the start date by to like tuesday because they're doing a a number of um early runs of particular larp events so i think like end of line they added a few more uh uh, something like that i can't quite remember Mm -hmm. what i need to look at it um yes so on the friday morning at uh 11 a.m for the best part of an hour we are doing our building chronicles for your world of worlds of darkness so We've got a good, what, 40 minutes talking about um, how to essentially use Chronicles of Darkness to power your World of Darkness games, because um, at least for the main, you know, for most of the games, there are um, are the translation guides, um, which, yeah, true, those may be only relevant, actually, for uh, first edition Chronicles of Darkness. But the point stands that you can easily replicate um, and run uh world of darkness settings using chronicles of darkness so some people already do that some people do that and are very happy doing that they also do that because they can start bringing in other things which are quite interesting uh to world of darkness to kind of you know reinvigorate your setting or uh 
add some extra nuance to it or add in the entire new faction. So like for Werewolf, you could possibly say you want to use the Harmony rules from uh, from Werewolf the Forsaken, use those in Werewolf the Apocalypse. For, for Vampire, you could add in the Covenants and add in far more political factions so you don't have just, you know, the Sabbat, the Camarilla and uh, and the Anarchs. Just stuff like that. And I think I think um, that's the whole point, really. We're just showing that you can... If you were running a tabletop game, you can make it your own and you are not limited by what White Wolf says, this is Vampire the Masquerade. You know, it is your game and you can do what you want. Yeah, it should be a really good talk, I think. Um, given that everything else is classic, is One World of Darkness talks there, so we will be the uh, kind of... Um, the, the odd one out there <laughs> with yeah, that the, talk. the lone rebels yeah but we were we were asked specifically to come on to talk about chronicles of darkness at that event and i think with what we're doing it's it makes it have added value for everyone uh whether they're fans of one game or the other or fans of both game settings so that's the good thing about it and we got slides so the slides will be available you know once we're done um they'll be online um and then on Saturday at three, was it three thirty? Yep. Yeah, uh, we're doing um, a live podcast. So I think we're going to try and do some other slots of a live podcast as well. But that's our true official slot. Um, I think the idea for that one, Mike, is given that's the day after um, the, the the main uh, LARP event, which is the Enlightenment in Blood. I think it's going to be a bit more of a, a decompression talk about what the LARP event, uh, the things that have been said at the keynotes. Uh, and ideally, we'll get a few guests on, like um, I suggested, like it'd be good to get like uh, Justin Achille uh, to talk to, because um, given he's worked on like both classic World of Darkness and, you know, and Chronicles of Darkness, he's worked on both properties. So it's good to have him there. Uh, I think Matt Dawkins is good just because, you know, he's good at podcasts and he writes now for, um, he's done a lot of writing for V20. So, uh, and he'll also have played in End of Line uh, the night, uh, on the Friday night, I think, on the Friday night? No, on the Thursday night or whenever. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, And uh, whoever else we can, um, whoever else is uh, interested in that. So I think I've suggested if we can do an earlier slot and try and get hold of someone like Martin and Rich Thomas to talk to, because it'll be good to talk about where White Wolf is going on top of what they've said at the keynote. And I'm sure Rich Thomas has got a lot to say about Onyx Path, given like, you know, we've got Deviant coming up, we've got second edition, we've got Geist second edition, we've got all these... Yeah, definitely. Super excited about it, and uh, it's going to be a great time and some cool new material for the podcast. And we will be participating in the Enlightenment in Blood uh, LARP event. So I'm not going to say what we're playing. Well, we might. We've got to keep that close to our chest. Cause... I'm, I'm just a schmo, dude. You're I don't just know what you're talking about. I'm just, I'm just a business business guy. Wheeler dealer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, with that, uh, let's move on over to our first segment, Discussing... Love Beyond Death. Classic World of Darkness. So, Chig, Love Beyond Death. Classic Wraith book from 1994, uh, developed by Jennifer Hartshorn and written by at least some sections by Seder Phil Brucato. Um, there's also two other authors, which I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, by Harry Heckel, Phil Brucato, and Jennifer Hartshorn. It's an interesting book, uh, very conceptual, 
even more so than, than many other uh, World of Darkness books that were coming out at that time, discussing mostly how to portray and explore tragic romance in your World of Darkness game, specifically for Wraith the Oblivion. I think it, I think it does a pretty good job of tackling that, that sort of initial conceit. Absolutely. The, uh, the one thing that I felt was missing was uh, actual Wraith on Wraith romance. Uh, but we'll get to that here in a little bit when we uh, get into our review, I guess. Yeah, certainly. So just to discuss the structure a little bit uh, and kind of tell people what to expect when uh, picking up this book or opening the PDF. Love Beyond Death is structured with, you know, a kind of a core uh, essay, basically, for the first chapter, which discusses really just the the concepts and different role-playing and storytelling techniques to explore, you know, romance love stories in your game. Uh, From there, it gives you uh, a bunch of different uh, sample stories, scenarios, which are all, you know, fairly short. Um, They probably only take you one or two sessions to run in your game. Um, And don't take up too much uh, space in the book. And in addition to that, uh, there's just some some odd little knickknacks, I guess, you know, some write-ups of some historical figures and their own uh, tragic love affairs, uh, and uh, even even some artifacts in uh, the Wraithly the world that are related to, to romance or, um, you know, the kind of passions of love. Um, so specifically, I think we're going to first just start off here, Chig, and talk about the the first chapter, uh, which I thought was phenomenal. I mean, that's kind of what you were looking for when you pick up this book, is this discussion and these kind of recommendations uh, for how to take these elements in your game about death and damnation and just kind of bring them to life, if you will. Well, setting, or I'm sorry, chapter one was was just the introduction. Chapter two in my opinion, is where the, the book really begins uh, after it's defined what it's going to do and you know laid out its, uh, sui- its suicide, laid out its um, general plot, I guess, of the book. But uh, hey, man, if you like chapter one better, that's great. <laughs> but uh, Oh, my bad. Sorry. I, it's been a couple months since I read this, so they kind of might have just blurred together ah, a little bit. No problem. Um, yeah, chapter one was really just the, the introduction. Hey, this is what this book is going to be about. Here's some uh, really general open terms, definitions of what we're going to be discussing. Um, but chapter two is where it starts to get into the nitty gritty of the things where it, uh, the chapter is called love and the game. Um, it, it's about running a game that incorporates romance, love, desire, and sex, which if you're going to be playing a game as heavily focused on emotions as a uh, wraith is, you might focus on some of those here and there on occasion. Um, it does a really great job of uh, telling you how to how to set the mood with tone and atmosphere, uh, with things like props and music, stuff like that. Um, and it also uh, covers very briefly how to deal with uh, sex in the game. Uh, you know how to say, and then they you know were distracted by one another, fade to black, so that it doesn't get too terribly uncomfortable for anybody else at the table. Um, it gets down to the game mechanical aspects of love, lust, romance, all that fun stuff. Uh, if you're going to build a wraith with passions about that, um, like I said, in my opinion, it is the strongest, uh, chapter in the book and it's useful, uh, for chronicles of all types, not just wraith, uh, that might want to include romance or seduction or anything like that. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Jake. So one of the interesting things that they do in here is they break up the uh, sort of relationships into, uh, you know, specific kind of groupings and recommendations. So you might have, there's a discussion in here about using, you know, NPC uh, and PCs as a, uh, you know, a kind of a loving relationship or some sort of a forlorn situation where one perhaps is alive, the other is dead now. And also gives you some recommendations and discussion for, you know, what if it's two player characters that are actually in this relationship? How is that going to work out? And specifically tells you, you know, certain boundaries that you need to discuss and uh, come up with beforehand so that, you know, everything works out at the table and uh, everyone's, yeah, everyone's comfortable and and content with the game. Um, But it also uh, has some, some good suggestions for not overwhelming the game with these elements of romance because the point of this and these specific passions is to accentuate the uh, condition of a wraith and to explore the the issues that come about uh, from love while in the Shadowlands. And, you know, the book is pretty clear about uh, not turning everything into a soap opera, basically. Um, you know, they, I think kind of the, the element that I took away is that if you're going to have one of these relationships, just have one. That's it. Don't, don't have two. Don't have three. Don't overwhelm the game with them. Um, because it makes it feel just a lot more unique and interesting for the other players while not overwhelming the game. And that was a, another good point that was brought up in this, this section was uh, if you're going to be doing this, don't focus too much on it um, because it might get a little boring for the other players since it's really just either you know, these two players just talking it out and everyone else watching or just the storyteller and the uh, the single player just focus on these very personal stories and elements that the other players may not be able to contribute to. So, See, yeah, now, pretty cool stuff. Now here's, here's where I'm going to have to disagree with you on that, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, I like soap operas. I don't like, you know, Days of Our Lives or anything like that, but I like I like the soap opera aspect that can come up in a game. I like it when you mm-hmm. have characters who are in a love triangle or quadrangle or whatever. Um, I like that kind of a game. I like a nice interpersonal feeling to a game. It, I'm, I'm not one of those guys who's all about, oh, we'll let you know, go find some goblins and hit them with a stick or anything. Although that can be fun as well. But if there's, if everybody is into that kind of a game where you're, you know, playing through how your feelings and how you deal with one another and all that, then it's fine. But yeah, if, if not everybody is into that, not everybody wants that kind of game. Somebody, most everybody else at the table really just wants to go out and hunt some monsters and Hey, don't bog down your group, but there's a time and a place for everything, including soap operas. In addition to that, uh, there's actually something really cool in here that uh, I just was skimming through and found. Um, I wasn't actually able to research this too much, but there's this really cool point in here where they're discussing, uh, dreams and how some people and and remember this was written in 1994 so there's probably more research into this uh, at this point but they're mentioning that uh, when people dream it's typically in the sort of deep sleep in the regular dream cycle however uh, a lot of people that have dreams of of loved ones typically that actually happens in a different sleep cycle known as the silent zone um, it's very it's just interesting, a very interesting point that the the human mind reacts slightly differently. 
So I thought it was just kind of a kind of a cool little aside that I want to look into more and see, you know, if there's been further research into that and uh, some explanations of why that might occur. But it could give you some uh, inspiration for your Wraith games since there are a couple of Arkanoi that do deal with dreams. And you can give some further, you know, explanations if, you know, say a mortal character is seeing a psychologist. Uh, that could be uh, some kind of cool, fun tidbits to sprinkle in there uh, regarding their condition. Oh, absolutely. There's... This book is only, what, 90-something pages? No, not even that. 68 pages. And it's just chock full of fun and exciting little tidbits like that that you can steal from. There's one additional chapter beyond that, beyond before we get into the sample chapters. Uh, there is Beyond Death, which is chapter three. And it uh, tells you how to incorporate... Uh, the themes of romance and love into your game. Um, and I like this chapter uh, because in addition to just covering, you know, having a girlfriend and romance and all that fun stuff, it covered um, other t- types of love that while are often present in uh, role-playing games, you don't often think about in uh, in general as, as a, a love. You know, there's, Epic romance, of course, and then there's unrequited love and all those things. But then it also touches on familial love and, uh, you know, love of uh, friends and things like that, which uh, you don't generally think of when you think of, you know, love in my game, but is often present in more games than you would think. So I like that it covered that and how to use that kind of stuff in your uh, in your game. So moving on to the, the sample stories... I don't know if there's too much I really want to say about these. Uh, one of them is phenomenal. I think it's awesome. The other three are not really anything to get excited about. I think you liked that one a lot more than I did. <laughs> so, oh, I thought it was great. I thought it was, it was great. Okay, let's just talk about the one good one. Okay. And let's talk about the other three. The one that I thought was the worst, but we'll talk about the one really good one first. Okay. Uh, I also think there was one that was definitely the worst, okay. but okay. Okay, so the good one. Object of Affection. Yes. So this is great. Uh, basically, the story conceit is that during the Civil War, there was a, uh, a man who died. And he had... There were two people that loved him. There was his wife, um, whom he did not have a very good relationship with, and also a black woman who he did have a good relationship with. And they all died. They all became wraiths. However, the man was soul-forged into a lantern, which uh, then came under the control of his wife. And Basically, these two women are now competing for the memory of his love, the memory of his affection, which is this this artifact, this object. And I think it's just great because it's a very nice Wraith-specific story to explore these elements uh, through these, these uh, NPCs. And compared to the other three, I think this is all relative, why I like it so much. The, the other three stories are not very Wraith-specific. They're actually just kind of like these really generalized ghost stories a little bit with some vague love elements thrown in. But this one, you know, it really makes sense that certain characters are part of the uh, the hierarchy, others are renegades, and how they're interacting um, just just seems like it would be a fun scenario just for like a session or two. Yeah, um, it is probably the best one in the book, but I mean, that's kind of damning with faint praise because the other three are just not that good at all. Uh, so, Jake, do you just want to quickly go over the other three? Um, sure. Just to um, let people know what they're about. Sure. Um, 
The first one is called The Price of Love. And it is about a um, secretary who became so obsessed with her boss that she starved herself to death and is now haunting him. It that's it. That's the story. Yep, that's it. It's like I said, it's it's not not very good. Um, they threw some ghost hunters in there just to give you some sort of an antagonist, basically but to give you something nah. to do. Yeah. Um, there is uh, then, of course, is object of affection, which for some reason Mike really just likes the best oh it's great it's, it's great it's not bad i'm not saying it's 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 bad i'm just saying it's 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 not that great <laughs> there's forever yours which is probably the longest in the book yeah it is but because uh, it has all that exposition but yeah there. it's there's really nothing going on there i mean it's um well i mean it so the, it's got a mad scientist who makes a way to to cross over the shroud or like interact with it from the mortal world so that's supposed to be the big problem the big conflict but the the whole love story the affection is just kind of a backstory yeah. it's just oh his his old boyfriend passed away and he wants to be able to talk to him so he creates this device it's not central to the story at all and the story is pretty avoidable i mean there's just an arkanoid that destroys electronic devices so yep Wraith just walks in, uses that story over. I mean, yeah, it's just kind of there. I, I don't know if this was written before <laughs> that Arkanoi was thought out because it's a very early book or what or and such. But uh, yeah, and then finally, there is my least favorite, uh, Forever Yours, which is the story of a very, very old, very, very powerful Wraith who has Wraith dementia and thinks that one of the PCs is his uh, long dead love. Spoiler alert, the PC is not the long dead love. And everybody takes advantage of this poor old man. It's not good. It's kind of it's it's it makes your characters kind of shits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so so my as I was reading through these, it seems like these were just these would have been good if they were just like two or three sentence story hooks, you know, taking up like half a page or something. Sure, and each one of them has a two or three uh, story hook variant in it. I mean, yeah, yeah. None of them are any better, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, they just weren't really served by, uh, you know, expanding them. So yeah, it's it's a little unfortunate, but uh, I mean, and, and this is this is pretty much the majority of the content of the book at this point. Uh, all all that remains basically is you know a couple pages detailing these these famous and now dead, you know, historical lovers, you know, like Anne Boleyn, Tristan, and Isolde, and some extra artifacts as well. I like I like this book overall. That's going to be my review, is I like it. I think the initial, you know, descriptive uh, essays in the beginning were very interesting and very useful to any World of Darkness game. But the back end of this book was all just filler, you know? Absolutely. Um, it's uh, it, 20 or 30 pages, including art, of a uh, really, really good... It's it's actually exactly thirty pages, and uh, then about another I don't know fifty eight thirty eight pages of uh, filler. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I would not spend much money on this. Uh, if you do want to check it out, uh, the PDF is actually pretty reasonably priced. It's only six bucks, and you know by today's standards, like a thirty page. PDF with good content would probably be like six bucks. So, 
you know, it kind of works out. Um, so that'd be my recommendation. You know, if it's like really expensive on eBay, unless you're collecting it for some reason, I would, I would not probably uh, spend a lot of money on it, but it's a, uh, it's cool. It's, there's a lot of good things to think about and, uh, some solid ways to kind of like expand your game. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that they put it out. Uh, I think it was a pretty good experiment, but I mean, I don't know if it sold well in the past, you know, based on the, the content of the Wraith line. It doesn't seem like they had any other books focusing on particular passions or anything like that. That is a good point. They really didn't, if this was the first one that they did and they were maybe going to do a, a line of, uh, different passions, then that really didn't pan out at all. Did it? Huh? Nope, I don't think so. Although I'm not, uh, I'm not sure if that was at all the the idea, or if they just needed another source book and they had this nice essay and could make another 35 pages of uh, filler. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. like, like you case. said, six dollars PDF, totally worth it. But uh, I would not pay more than six dollars. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Cool. Uh, hey, Chris, Matt, do you have any questions or opinions on what you just heard here about Love Beyond Death? Um. Not- Really, really. you know, the the (laughs) stories are all fairly wraith centric since, you know, it's all about, you know, one of the members having to be dead. That doesn't really fit into anything except a vampire. I mean, these are all stories that you could use as like ghostly hauntings for other splats, I guess. And I mean, think of it, looking at it from like a Chronicles Darkness point of view, because you know, the rules for ghosts are so tightly integrated across all the game lines. You know, you can take all these as story seeds in that way. But, you know, they wouldn't be interacting with wraiths, you know, the you know, they'd be, you know, it's either a vampire or a, a mage or someone that's interacting that is the target. Or just a normal human that's the target of these these uh, ghosts and these stories, you know. That, um, so, I guess they could be used in that way. They're, they're all you know, story seeds. You know what, Matt? I think this is highly applicable to Werewolf the Apocalypse and Werewolf the Forsaken. Because what if there was a spirit that was in love with a werewolf? Would this not be directly... Actually, they can just step sideways. What if, Matt, what if there was a spirit that was in love with a kinfolk? That's an interesting conflict right there, isn't it? Spirit of love, spirit of passion... That's a story seed right there for you. You you do or I might just be crazy. You know that um, Children of Gaia Revised has a gift that allows you to fuck health back into a spirit, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think I might have known that at some point because you told me. But thank you for reminding me. So what I'm hearing is uh, always take this uh, gift for your werewolf LARP character. Gotcha. That that is the same book with um the right of clouds and rain, which has the um wonderful um met notes of don't. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! Uh, all right, that's that's good, that's good, Matt. All right, cool. So, is that it for uh for Love Beyond Death here? Should we move on over to our first Chronicles of Darkness uh, segment of the show? Oh yes, let's. Chronicles of Darkness. So it's the Demon of the Descent Storyteller's Guide. So uh, Demon of the Descent is 
an interesting game. I'm still kind of developing an idea of what I might run for it at some point. I think I might get more ideas when I'm in Berlin, and also because one of the Dark Era's settings for Chronicles of Darkness is for demons set during the Cold War of Berlin. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to immerse myself in Berlin in that sense to get, get some ideas of how I can run demon or all the types of stories I want to run. Now, as a storyteller's guide, it's useful because obviously it uh, goes into more detail on um, certain aspects of Demon, the uh, antagonists, and also gives you some good story hooks. Uh, I'm going to start actually kind of from the back. So, Chapter 5 is just, you know, alternate setting games for Demon the Descent. Um, you can run it more cyberpunk style. Now, I'm not going to go into that because, you know, that's really, that that's not really extra content that explains how Demon as a game in its as its main presentation should be run those are alternative things what i did find interesting was chapter four which is the urban legends so there's a lot of story hooks and things that you can use in your games and extra mechanics that you can pull in but also in that section and i think this is why this why it shows that demon is great for along with you know things like geist i would say geist demon and mage are like the as well as Mortal Games and Hunter, are so crossover friendly. So Demon is crossover friendly with Mage because both both factions interact with reality in a particular way. Mages are kind of like hackers, whereas Demons, they know the root code and they know all the backdoors, so they can exploit those. And of course, if Demons have powers that are called exploits. So one of the things that pops out when you look at the uh, in Chapter 4 where it talks about demons interacting with mages, it talks about how they might interact with pentacle mages or seers of the throne. And the thing that really jumps out is the following. It isn't clear whether the god machine contracts seers of the thrones to work with it or whether there is some alliance between the god machine and the exarchs. So the seers of the throne can sometimes be involved with god machine uh plots to develop infrastructure that immediately you know is really cool and you know you could have your your ring of um your your ring of uh, of demons that are you know investigating uh some infrastructure that brings them into direct conflict with these with these mages who have a control over reality in a way that demons don't, and who are also beholden to to powers beyond, you know, rea- the world itself. So that off off the first bat is just, I think, excellent. So you know, there's some ideas there. There's some how you can how you know you in you get mage to work with demon and the type of things you should expect if you're not familiar with mage. Obviously, this um, I think I don't think demons are quite so happy with dealing with the Scholasti because that involves uh, involving the abyss, and that's where uh, things can go a little bit crazy. Uh, if we talk about werewolf, though, uh, again, you know, the thing that jumps out is how demons interact, and thus how the God Machine interacts with the Idigam. So the Idigam are, you know, these creatures before time, proto spirits that were tr- banished to the moon and have returned since the, the the moon missions in the 1960s and so forth. And they are spirits that are amorphous and can take on whatever forms. And they are, as as uh, this chapter explains, they are terrifying to demons, 
Uh, I would imagine they're terrifying to angels because they do not conform to the god machine's rules and they are quite happy to reshape the world and destroy the occult infrastructure and occult matrices that the god machine is creating through its agents in the world. So again, there's there's really uh, cool story threads uh, that can come from that with both how demons might want to interact with spirits and the Edigam, or obviously how werewolves may see demons as uh, a type of ally against this entity that these entities, the Edigam, which you know are beyond both the knowledge of the God Machine and and, uh, and terrify werewolves and demons uh, equally. Of course, there's a discussion about the Prometheans uh, and how they are, uh, you know, have a difficult relationship with demons. I think that's because obviously Prometheans are trying to become human. Uh, demons aren't human, masquerading as humans. And of course, you've got the demonic pats, which obviously are stealing people's lives. I don't think Prometheans would be very happy with that, much in the same way that Prometheans would not be happy with a beast telling them, oh, but you're a monster. You know, I think there's quite obvious antagonism that could turn up there. Obviously, there's some rules on how disquiet influences demons so that you you can use that as a condition within your demon game. So some of the conditions that would turn up from Promethean are uh, reprinted here for use in uh, in demon. Of course, there is the, the principal and the Quishalim, who are, again, this uh, the principal is this abstract godlike entity that channels pyros and energy into our world and the Quishalim who are kind of spirit angel angelic like spirits and again big discussion that you should treat that that if you're gonna if you're going to include the principle of the Quishalim in your game you should treat them in the same way as you treat the god machine and a noble eldritch kind of entity that is also an entity of change in the way that the god machine is not so this kind of works into some of the ideas that we'll, I'm sure we'll we'll discuss talk about using some of these these ideas that you you can inject into your uh, world of darkness games demons should be wary about interacting with the 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 quashmillan uh plans you know because the quashmillan can come in and, and do things like just leaving a book on a, open on a certain page or killing certain people to to push promethean along their way to whatever uh goal or to perform whatever action that the principal requires um uh, so that's obviously fun reading. Uh, there's a, obviously a discussion about changing the lost and how they in, changelings interact with demons. Uh, basically, the god machine does not interact with the hedge. It's uh, kind of anathema to it. And the true fae are a unknowable type of creature, which again, uh, you know, they they break the rules of the god machine so again they're they're not fun entities for demons to interact with hunt of the visual there's i'm not going to go into this there's a lot of discussion on each of the different groups and how they interact with uh demons guys the sin eaters Mm -hmm. again uh they don't follow the same rules as demons because they interact with the dead they go to a realm where the god machine doesn't doesn't penetrate into uh interesting useful allies because they don't because they they can work around uh, the god machine's infrastructure in different ways and deal with ghosts and so forth. Uh, the discussion, though, about Mummy the Curse, again, is quite equal to that of, of Promethean. Again, because 
mummies are very powerful entities that are the servants of these unknowable gods of death. And again, you don't want to piss them off. There's, again, some more uh, discussion about that and how uh, the the uh, energy, their, um, uh, their uh, what is it, not essence, the, um, oh, I can't remember what mummies are powered on, but, you know, how that interacts with demons and is uh, is useful. But I think there's yeah, some uh, other second... interesting, second, yeah, there's some interesting things to be said about the Strix, if we talk about vampire. So the Ordo Dracul are obviously drawn to places where energy coalesces. And the god machine manipulates essence. So infrastructure, ley lines, and um, oh, what is it that the uh, autodrachal follow? What is it called? Not coil. What, what's the sentence? The coils. Do you understand what I mean? No, it's not the coils. The the lo- the the loci, where essence obviously blossoms up into our world, tainted by whatever um, energies and. Uh, feelings and emotions are, are, are located with that area. So the the autodrachal are drawn to infrastructure to investigate and see how that works into ley lines. And of course that means the autodrachal will mostly note that the Strix are also drawn to the Strix of course are agents of corruption and destruction and chaos and they like fucking up the god machine's infrastructure so it says that when the strix are attracted to infrastructure over time um strange not quite biological liquid bubbles up up from the ground around these buildings and uh facilities uh buildings crack machines break uh and this in turn draws more strix to them so again this fits into the idea that strix are causing chaos so the idea that the strix are also hunted down by angels is quite interesting uh, because of course that means well is there a reason then for why certain vampires may well have work for certain angels of the god machine you know tit for tat you know you kill the strix for us we'll help defend your infrastructure in certain places or ensure that an occult matrix comes into being. So that's, uh, you know, there's a whole section that looks into how each of the other supernatural entities in the, uh, in the game uh, interact with the God machine. Uh, there's nothing said about beast, but I think that's because the book was written before beast was finalized. And also that we know that demons hate mm-hmm. beasts. So enough said. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, the one thing that uh, I'm kind of curious if it was mentioned in the book is that in Hunter Mortal Remains, it now clarifies that the Lucifuge conspiracy are in relation to demons from Demon of Descent and not like something from World of Darkness Inferno or the uh, uh, Goetic demons of Mage, of Mage the Awakening. Yeah. Um, so uh, was that was that yeah. brought up in here? No, they they talk about the Chiron group, and they talk about Network Zero. They don't talk about the Lucifuge, uh, uh, so they are clearly um, treated separately in that Hunter book. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm really sold on that idea of Lucifuge being related to the Demon of the Sent Demons, but 
that's what they went for in that book. And I mean, it's all optional because this is Chronicles of Darkness. So use it if yeah. you want. Uh, so if we go right back then to the start of the book, because that covers, you know, I, I thought covered like how this book helps you get demon working with other games. Uh, they introduce a new, uh, they, they go into more detail, full detail on the analyst, which is a new incarnation for demon. So the idea of that analysts are the type of angel that's never known about because and never seen because they, they merely observe to gather gather data for the god machine so it knows then what next to do. So normally people think that demons normally think that analysts are, are just you know messengers or or a psychopomp, but they're not. They're, they're a different type of angel. That does then also mean that there are demons that are on the analysts incarnation but also may not even know that they're analysts themselves they may well identify themselves with a different um group and that plays into something that is discussed later in this book that a demon when they fall may well possibly change their incarnation so they could be a destroyer demon but the fall in fact kind of reformats them and turns them into a guardian so you can also use that as an idea in your game that the, the incarnation of demon that you are doesn't necessarily match the incarnation of angel that you were before your fall. Uh, so analysts, as I say, they they they, they mainly um, they're about observation and they don't favor any particular class of embeds, but they do show a greater ability to use exploits. Um, and they don't have to follow the normal uh, prerequisites for exploits. So they, they know how to um, gather those powers more easily. Uh, Analysts, uh, demonic forms are unobtrusive. You know, they've got elements of them like that represent stealth capabilities. You know, they might have large opular kind of, of machinery of, of their eyes, um, you know, wings and, and things that allow them to move and, and, and view things without being spotted. Uh, that's a kind of an interesting extra incarnation that's been added in. So, moving on then, chapter one mainly covers essentially it's a it's a primer on how you play, how players should play demon and and seek out their particular form of hell. So, for each particular type of um, whether they're uh, not whether they're an incarnation, but how they treat their their interaction with the god machine, whether they're like inquisitors or whether they're what is it, inquisitors, integrators, or um I can't quite or saboteurs. It gives a few ideas of how they pursue their own hell on earth and whether that's they're trying to create a life for themselves on earth and 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 be not seen and not noted by the agents of the god machine. Perhaps they want to gather power and bring it around, bring it around them so they can leverage against the god machine. Or maybe it's uh, they want to, um, you know, how they want to reintegrate with the god machine and thus uh, uh, bound it to the point that they can reintegrate with the god machine yet still retain their their own semblance of. Uh, of identity which they gained through the fall so really you've just got different ways of how you as they present it they go what is your personal mission of your 
descent into your personal hell. What is the road along? What is the road that you follow in order to to achieve that? And then it also has a, a section under each of the ideas of how how can that hell how can that hell be disrupted by um, by by either the god machine or antagonistic demons to you. So how can your well-laid plans fall apart? So again, I think these are all different. It, it's a great little chapter that can help when you're building your... When you've got your group of players, helping them think more about, I'm a demon, but what is my what is my long-term arc that I want to explore in this chronicle? Because often that's the hardest thing. It's like, yeah, you've got a great idea for a character, but... You, you think you've got a great idea for a character in terms of they have this cover, they have these powers, but what does the descent mean to them, and how, and what is what is that goal that you're trying to work towards? Obviously, these things can shift over the ter- over the course of play, but by having these, at least you can have players focused on how they're then going to interact with the, the stories that you present them, because obviously, then they have ideas of what assets they want to acquire what people they want to meet and if they really want to what infrastructure they want to attempt to destroy or capture yeah certainly and i mean this is one of the things that was uh you know a little rough in promethean first edition because the milestones were so binding but uh, especially with second edition how they've uh kind of opened up the pilgrimage a lot more um it's just a great way to basically pass along a lot of the planning and storytelling to the players themselves and you know sets up some of the uh, expectations of the game that the storyteller can then just go and run with and yeah, also exactly. just kind of a fun way to kind of you know just track the timeline of your character as well as you see these particular uh events and uh goals that you want to achieve unfold so i'm a real big fan of it uh you know particularly in, in promethean but also here in, in demon as well yeah so i mean it, there's lots of really good ideas in there and i, I would make this part of the book very much out you know give it to the players let them have a good read of it because it would really then help them get a good focus on what they want to get out of the game now a a good section in chapter one which is i think it was always a kind of a tricky one is the cipher and and what it is and what those revelations are as uh, a demon you know fits into their cipher the the um the keys that unlock it so again the idea is that like um the cipher in the game is is where they the the demon is lock interlinking certain embeds in in a particular they have to be the right ones in the right order so that it finally unlocks some greater truth for the demon so again, there's there's a, a large discussion about how the storyteller should work towards building the cipher, which embeds you should use together. And the thing when you we have embeds when they interlock, they unlock further powers. And the idea is that you should be careful that the powers you unlock should not make embeds redundant. Okay. So again, it's a, there's a discussion both in terms of of the philosophy and the the game, the the world me, the world context of what these uh, a cipher is, and as you uh, fit the embeds together, but also mechanically in the game, you should make 
what they're gaining worthwhile without making things redundant, or you're just presenting them a version of a power that's only slightly better. Uh, so there's a there's a huge discussion in in design this. And I have to say, through reading, I'm I feel more confident in reading in, in running Demon. Uh, there's and again, the final secret should not be something you have to feel as a storyteller. You have to come up with on your own. Again, you should work with your players to come up with what that final secret is, so that then you can play a appropriately dramatic story where either they they do achieve this um, final secret, they do unlock it, or of course they fail and the story that you tell has certain um, dramatic consequences with regard to that failure of, of getting that final secret. Of course, you should also employ some clues on on how um, they get to that secret and and any kind of clues as they attempt to test which embeds lock together. They also give some ideas of what things can be revealed to a demon uh, as a final secret. So, for example, if say you're play and these relate to the 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 the, the type of hell on earth that we were that I talked about earlier, they link to those. Your, your, your descent, what the final secret should be. So your pathway to hell may well be run counter to what the final secret is that you uncover. So either they, they're complementary or they're contrasting. So depending upon how you want to play what the true re- revelations are to your demon, you can pick these to fit, fit each other. So for example, if you're, say, a demon who's pathway to hell is that they want to be an arcane physicist they really want to understand how the god machine works how the occult infrastructure operates in our world and how how you know how simply the demon you know how 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 the god machine has a building built there another building built there and then has like 20 sacrifices committed around the buildings over time and that creates some you know resonance and some outcome like summoning an angel how all that works the the revelation for unlocking your cipher for an arcane physicist could be you are the fulcrum find the lever so essentially saying that as a demon you know you are you are a turning point and an integral to to changes in the world but you have to find where you fit into the world to make those changes or for example i see uh, like an integrator, so someone that wishes to control the god machine and integrate with it and tame it. Uh, the revelation when they unlock their cipher, the example they give here is every pawn is a potential queen. Guide them to the end of the board. Now that way it may well also mean that 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 revelation may also mean that the demon changes their viewpoint on the world. That they don't need to integrate with the god machine that they they can help both themselves and other demons be guided to end goals that that elevate themselves above the god machine itself so you know that's i think that's really all of that works together that you it feels easier to come up with to design the cipher now the other thing is that there are only three interlocks in the game. There's an interlock between your first and second embeds. 
second and third, and the third and fourth. But it does suggest that you can add new interlocks into the cipher. So you could add in a fourth interlock between the fourth and first embed. And it's just ideas that you could add further truths that a demon could unlock. And there is a discussion that because there is a fifth uh, incarnation, also this gets into the idea that there is power in numbers, maybe the cipher could have a fifth embed forced into it. Now, of course, the idea that you could do that is um, is considered highly dangerous and uh, could result in your demon completely burning all their covers and, and such like. So so again, there's there's some ideas on how you can both run the, use the cipher in your game as it is, and obviously the examples that make it easier to build that. But also there are ideas that you can you can say have even a demon look at what they've built for their cipher so far and seek out ways that they could possibly uh, reformat parts of their cipher and and use a different embed in there that could also mean that leads them to a different fundamental truth and i like that i like this idea that you know you much like you know that the demons are looking for ways to add to themselves got that that growing kind of self-determination that they never had when they were an angel. Yeah, I mean, just like the discussion in this book of how to uh, kind of just modify, change the mechanics around to enhance your story, I think is really great. Um, it's just really cool. And, you know, as you probably noticed, especially on this episode, I'm a big fan of, you know, uh, having kind of like a tight story mechanics to uh, kind of like, you know, push the game forward in a particular way. So this is all a pretty cool discussion to me. And they do give about uh one two three four good examples of a cipher and it gives you the interlocks as well so there are four good examples there on how to lock them together what the dice pool would be for the interlocks what the power is that you would get from it what the dramatic failure so you've got nothing again it's examples the game becomes a lot easier and it's um, it's just a case of page you know page count in the core book that unfortunately this stuff couldn't be included because it makes life so much easier um and yeah i i'm really i think you know mike when i'm when we're there in berlin um I'm, i think I'll, I'll read beforehand the dark eras one and i'll just you know when we've got a few minutes we'll just i'm going to brainstorm with you some some ideas for demon um right cool. chapter two this is really cool. So this is Children of the Killer God. So this is about angels. So this, again, is more information on how to use angels, how they work, how they interact with the world, possibly even how you might want to play as one, which is interesting. Um, the reason I say how you want to um, how you want to play as one um, because it gives you ideas on how angels have certain protocols, certain certain things that they do, certain ways that they think, certain things that they will observe. Uh, so it gives you guidelines on how they should be played, uh, which are useful, obviously, as ST, so you can present angels as distinctly different between, say, a destroyer, a guardian, a psychopomp, a, a messenger, uh, an analyst, and so forth. And obviously there's more rules on how to design angels, what the, the relationship with their rank and uh, uh, numina and, and bands and so forth is. And again, more examples of those but then you get other things which the god machine sends out 
such as exiles. So exiles are angels that do not have a purpose. They have been somehow let loose on the world and forgotten about by the God machine, but they have not fallen. Um, that's clearly um, hmm. a different thing altogether. Yeah, certainly. So they think they're still working for the God machine, but they have not fallen, therefore are not demons and are not driven in the same manner. Does and they that... don't have a mission. Yeah. So, oh, okay. so for an angel to... Mission, but they're still working for the God machine. Yeah, so they have to find certain ways that they can do things to the God machine that allows them to gather essence to continue their existence. And those things are called parameters. So there are certain things that, that uh, uh, an exiled angel does which fulfills these parameters so uh, again there's a discussion of of what that means and of course an angel has a very different um experience of the world because it doesn't have a mission because it hasn't fallen because it's it's not constructing something that is a a, a simulacrum of a of a human being and it's not stealing people's lives to, through demonic packs to create covers it has a very, very weird way of how it works in the world. And of course, as a demon, for you to discover exiles, both, the, you know, angels could, pre- exiled angels both could present exciting opportunities for you to obviously screw with the God machine, but also very, very dangerous uh, enemies because they don't have set missions. So they are, they have all the power of an angel, yet they can clearly have full free reign on how they operate in the world. Yeah. So that's, um, again, there's a discussion of how those are. And as a, an exile, um, there's a, the other thing with the exiles is that they can become what are known as slivers. Um, which, if I can find the discussion on slivers briefly... Um, where are we? As slivers. Um, oh, sorry, I'm trying to find the discussion on slivers, uh, which is to do with how angels. I think it has. Oh uh, yeah, if an if a if an exile ignores their parameters for too long and they begin to degenerate, they turn into what's known as a sliver, and that's how. Some exiles actually come into existence. This is an agonizing process it describes that begins without prior warning and is preceded by 48 hours of sharp, desperate need to seek out targets. Should the exile fail to undertake the simple project related to their parameters, they will twist, snap, and break into an unrecognizable monstrosity. So they're not a demon, they're not an angel, they're something else with that power now let loose on the world. That um hmm sounds dangerous i would assume that angels would not be happy with this sort of an entity existing because that could definitely draw attention to uh things that the god machine does not want attention drawn to of course because obviously these these angels and possibly even slivers will be drawn to essence and they'll be drawn to infrastructure and they're just going to obviously be a big you know flag for demons to follow to find you know, quite secretive in- infrastructure. Of course, with the problem, the problem with um, with uh, 
with um, exiles is that sometimes the the god machine can also send angels into the world as exiles as a uh, as a way of kind of hiding an angel in the world and then as a kind of like a sleeper agent and then its mission comes into being once the right kind of parameters have been fulfilled and the Mm. right uh, things have come into place. And so what was originally just a kind of, it's an angel, but it's not a threat and has actually been interacting with demons in an almost friendly manner has now obviously been triggered and becomes this angel now with a purpose and with a mission. Interesting. Yeah, it's a good idea. There's also um, things called imperatives. So they're not angels. They're kind of smaller things put into the world. They're smaller servants, minor servants of the God machine. And they're an imperative is, is it's originally designed to make a person uh, do something. So it's like, you know, making sure a person turns left, not right at a particular junction so that, you know, the God machine's plan carries on. You don't need an angel to do these things. So it's minor things where you don't need the level of interaction and thought that an angel brings, but you still need to have some level of direction. And some of these imperatives, obviously, have a have some. Sometimes imperatives can keep on existing beyond the lifetime of their function. And so, an example of this is called the Wendigo psychosis, which causes people to obviously in in uh, the extreme cold to become cannibals. So that is uh, a drive to cause people to, for people to become cannibals. So the, these ideas, it's kind of like a mimetic virus. Hmm. That's so, so it's like an underlying program basically. Yeah. Which affects people, but it's Hmm. not a spirit, but it is, well, it is a spirit, but it's not a classic spirit from the Hissel. You also have uh, Simulcra, uh, which Simulcra outwardly appear human, though have been extensively modified with machinery to perform particular t- tasks. So basically, they're the staff that protect an infrastructure along with angels. Hmm. So I'm confused. Are you always able to punch the imperative, or is it something more conceptual? Or does it vary? Uh, no, so an imperative is, so an imper- imperative is a conceptual thing. Uh, okay. But it's it's kind of like a conceptual spirit that that causes people to do certain thing, do a certain action or certain thing, whereas a simulcra is a, a person that performs a certain action that's being built by the god machine. But like, there's also it, a, an imperative, an imperative that gets off the leash, kind of like it seems like like a, almost like a paperclip maximizer for human behavior. Like, it's mm. been programmed to tell people to do something, but never told to stop once its purpose has been fulfilled. So it's just mm. out there continually making people do this thing to the point where it's probably actually impairing its original function. Yeah, it could be like, an imperative could have been something like, you know, it could have been loose in the world and it was designed to make a particular, like, person become addicted to heroin, for example, right? Because you need that person taking out of, of a, a company in order to have that company perform certain actions so that they fulfill the goals of the gold machine. But that imperative now didn't become, you know, didn't go off and delete itself after it finished its role. It's now unfortunately loose in the world and is the reason why there's a particular kind of, um, you know, 
there's there's a there's a, a rampant drug usage in a in a particular area of the city. Other stuff that can grow around infrastructure is cryptoflora. So this is wildlife that obviously is exposed to ether. The other th- another thing is and this one's really cool, and I really like this a lot because this ties in with Geist so well. Are echoes. So you know when a demon steals someone's life to create a cover and that person is essentially deleted their soul is the soul is forced out of their existence but their existence still exists and the demon steps into it yeah yep. an echo is the vengeful spirit that comes back from that cover nice that's really good i really really like that again that's almost if we talk about it in that computer programming way it's that that um underlying kind of information that's still there even though you've overwritten it um echoes always want to destroy their nemesis in some fashion they see they though they differ in approach and methods yeah yeah uh the origins of echoes remain unknown but of course as you can see how for the most part echoes follow the rules of ghosts however they also possess numina unique to angels so they could be excellent threats both for geist and for demon uh also um i have a question like are echoes like when you do a soul pact and you take over someone's life is it that or is it yes it's that or is it or is it the echo of like the gestalt creation you've created out of bits and people someone's life no oh that's 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 it actually interesting i would it's it's the first one the the latter idea i kind of like the echo of of a person that didn't exist but it's the echo of the cover that you created yeah, like like the echo, like if your cover gets burned, then yeah. that comes back as an echo. Not yeah, you know, oh, you took over somebody's life and now their soul is angry at you. And here's the fun thing: what's the anchor for these echoes? Oh, it's the demon. The demon yeah. is the actual anchor for it. Uh, and then you've got layers. Layers are a weird thing. So layers are on rare occasions the god machine sends its angels in covers as buildings. Yeah. Okay. Didn't we? Didn't didn't Demon cover this in a previous book where a building or a uh, whatever? Like I remember we discussed a, an apartment building that was a demon or something similar to that at one point. Well, that might have Poss- been a different demon, like a not a de- descent demon, but another yes. like a like a like a bound demon to an to an werewolf. Yeah, like in Werewolf, you can get obviously spirits of buildings, and those those spiritual reflections of the buildings are also kind of like sentient and and drag people yeah. in. But this is this is kind of that, but in the real world. Yeah, I think what uh, Chig's referring to is there was like a blog post or something on the Onyx Path website where they were brainstorming, like, wait a minute, the rules will let you make a demon who's actually a building, and this mm. is probably just taking it a step further and like including it in a source book. Um, I'm, I'm just envisioning like the building falling and being like, ha I'll rebel against the god machine. Shit, I can't move. Um, the thing is, though, with Lairs, is Lairs at the same time, they're not only just angels, but they're also, they, they, it says, it, it tends to even arrange elimination infrastructure. At, um, there was it. The god machine does not attempt to rescue these trapped angels called Lairs by those aware of them. It tends to even arrange elimination infrastructure or ignore them. So it'll build these Lairs obviously because they're traps, um, because they're some form of defense infrastructure. And then it's quite happily to exile them. The demon, the, the god machine 
It's like, I built you, you're doing that, that's it, bye. And the poor old angel that's left in there is left to obviously um, go insane. And perhaps, unless it gets eliminated and gets you know taken apart and destroyed, there's the danger, obviously, that after a long enough time, you know, it's going to become a sliver. So God knows what that building becomes as a sliver. Um, what are slivers again? So slivers are exiles that have gone completely mad. Okay. And, uh, and no longer fulfill parameters even for the God machine. And that's uh, how you get the Amityville horror. Yes. So, or, sliver- or, you know, gigantic robo house transformer. Yeah. Um, so a yeah, slivers basically create ongoing errors in reality that afflict demons and angels alike. Radios malfunction in their presence. Electronics refuse to operate. Machines obviously break down or don't perform what they do. Slivers offer a diversion um, for spy drama. Or, you know that. So they're, they're really they're just errors in in the god machine's plans. So the god machine has to be careful when it makes layers because, again, once the layer has kind of acted as that honeypot for long enough, it needs to get rid of it before it um, before it obviously goes haywire and starts mucking up the infrastructure and occult complexes around it. Uh, the rest of that chapter too obviously contains a ton more numina that you can use for your angels, which is fine because more powers are useful to use. Uh, they also introduce some new powers called insects. So insects are the root access codes of reality granted to angels. Uh, these gifts allow for awe-inspiring displays of power. They alter an angel's relationship to numinous influences and the universe. Uh, to creatures with the power to see beyond normal reality, insects ripple the fabric of creation in a noticeable way, creating etheric resonance. And uh, they also trigger... Um, uh, the, sorry, etheric resonance automatically triggers uh, if they're within the uh, uh, demon's uh, primum range. So it is such a huge amount of power that's brought into reality that it, you know, only is shaping reality. It's also causing demons to be powered up and uh, uh, resonate with that ether. Yeah, that's. I mean, th- again, there's so much in there that you can use along with all the other weird was it the um stigmatics uh from the uh from the core game which is humans that have interacted with the god machine sufficiently enough to have gained powers and other weirdness that this this book just adds so many extra weirder things into demon to really flesh it out and so the things you're not always having to worry about are demon uh, are angels or the things that angels are manipulating just you know, normal humans. There are other weirder things out there like those echoes and these these uh, imperatives, you know, the, the mimetic virus type things. Chapter three, uh, which I was where I'm going to finish off. So chapter three is really just a big discussion about the spy genre in literature and in film and how you make use of this in your games it talks about it discusses the the spy genre using the four four classifiers of soft loud smooth rough and that really just describes how you're interacting with the world so soft is really about um 
it's really about how how um, whether it's you're playing like James Bond type stories, or you're playing the born something that's more like the born identity, or are you doing something that's a bit more gritty and it's like the the uh, like something like Terminator, the Sarah uh, Connor Chronicles, that so gives an example, or is it something that's like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? It goes through all of that and it explains where you can introduce places where players can get beats by playing into the the themes of those types of stories. So loud, of course, is obviously if you're playing a very bombastic game where you know there's you know explosions everywhere. Their example for it is is uh, Moonraker uh, <laughs> as a film. <laughs> um, uh, you know stuff like that. I mean, I'm not going to go through it because there's, there's so in, in too much detail. But again, there are examples of how you should build characters to fit these um, these types of stories, and again where players should get beats or merits that allow them to play into these games. Um, I think personally going through it, I kind of like the, the idea of the soft rough, which they describe as the gritty genre. And that's um, the examples they give for that is kind of like the, the Sarah Connor Chronicles or like the, um, or the matrix. So you kind of very ground street level, you know, you're always constantly having to look over your shoulder it isn't about the big, you know, there's always that very constant level of paranoia. It's not the James Bond going in and shooting up the place and, uh, and, uh, and running away with the, with all the information. Cause he, you know, clearly one man is enough to take out a secret facility of, of Spectre apparently. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot there and there's a lot of, it, it gives a lot of examples of media you can look at, uh, for example, it, it references the original Deus Ex game. It references like Sapphire and Steel, the uh, the uh, BBC series, um, which was kind of um, they just, a British sci-fi drama with uh, these interdimensional operators that go in and and, and work out why there's like a, a fault in time. Uh, the Hitman series, obviously things like that. So it's just a it's just a chapter that really gets you into thinking about what is the spy drama that what is the spy so what is the spy genre and how are you going to use that in your game and do you want it to be explosions everywhere or do you want it to feel like a tough paranoia paranoia driven uh existence where you're you're looking at the day-to-day level of how a demon maintains its cover and then you're ramping up the paranoia that way rather than each episode you're going into a facility into an infrastructure and you know planting bombs and then at the end of the day, you know, having a a martini, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Cool, cool. That's pretty much the book. I I think it's really great. Yeah, definitely. Chris, how many bits out of eight? How many many bits out of eight? Uh, Are these qubits or or regular bits? Uh, Just, you know, regular bits out of a byte. Yeah, bits yeah, out of a bite, but is, 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 is it a qubit using a quantum computer? Because that's that's hard to determine. It's in a it's let's, in a. Let's use a normal processor here. <laughs> um, I would say it, it exists on about. I would give it a a good solid seven. I think eight mm. would be if it had a, a few more examples of how to build your or a bit. Uh, I think eight would be eight would be 
a bit more discussion about how to run the game on some other terms, I think. I think the section about the spy genre could be a lot bigger. It's not that many pages compared to the rest of the book. But yeah, it definitely sounds like an awesome book and uh, pretty psyched that you uh, reviewed it for us. Cool. Uh, so do you think we're ready for a quick little secret frequency? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. It's under the stairs. For European explorers, Australia was perhaps the most bizarre land. The terrain was incredibly diverse, from deadly deserts to near-tropic forests, and the fauna were of strange breeds exhibiting the unique marsupial characteristics seen only briefly before in the Americas. But it was on the shores of Lake Bathurst in 1818 that English explorers first discovered a new beast, its skeletal remains looking something like a hippopotamus or a manatee. The Philosophical Society of Australasia offered a handsome reward for the retrieval of the bones, but by the time anyone returned to the lake, they'd been swallowed up. Rumored sightings of these large, waterborne mammals uh, persisted, uh, but more remains were actually found. Bizarre sightings uh, just began to spring up in the wilderness. It wasn't long before the Europeans adopted a name for this creature, taken from the aboriginal languages, the Bunyip. Newspapers included many contradictory descriptions of these beasts. George Angus, for example, described it as a water spirit much dreaded by the native peoples that took the shape of an enormous starfish. Other descriptions included walrus-like tusks, duckbills, dog faces, and even a crocodile head. But the native tribes had their own lore. Each year, on the banks of the Fiery Creek, they redrew the image of the Bunyip. It was a massive, life-size artwork that was 11 paces long and 4 paces wide. They drew it as a warning, telling the natives to beware of the swamps where the Bunyip lurked, where it savored the sweet flesh of women and children that it captured. The only warning of the Bunyip was its terrible howls, warning the victim of imminent doom. The Bunyip craze of the mid-19th century really took off once a mysterious skull appeared on display in the Australian Museum of Sydney, and then vanished a few days later. There's only a few descriptions of the long, fanged skull that remain, but after its appearance, the settlers of Australia cited the Bunyip more and more. So, how can we use the Bunyip in the world of darkness? Leaving aside uh, Werewolf the uh, Apocalypse, obviously, there's a lot of uh, kind of cool concepts you can do with this. Uh, one interesting thing could be uh, that there's actually a, an animal out there that is going through a sort of rapid evolution, uh, changing its form repeatedly and very frequently. Uh, this could, you know, obviously be similar to Werewolf, where you have kind of like a shapeshifter almost, uh, but something different uh, that is unrelated to the changing breeds and the uh, Garu themselves, or the Uratha, of course, in Werewolf Forsaken. Uh, another option might be simply mass hysteria. There's all these people that are sighting this creature uh, outside in the wilderness, but it doesn't seem to exist. There's no real evidence of it, uh, aside from a few hoaxes. Um, so what does this mean? Uh, could this be, as Chris just mentioned, uh, an imperative that's gone loose and uh, run wild? 
and still exists. Uh, maybe they're beings from another dimension. Uh, World of the Apocalypse, again, kind of covers this in a lot of ways uh, with the Bunyip themselves. Uh, but maybe there's actually an alternate timeline from before uh, Demon the Fallen brought all the different uh, dimensions and timelines together. Uh, this is just an echo of that that still exists. And by learning more about it, you may be able to access some hidden secrets and uh, gnosis, if you will. So, do you guys have any ideas for the Bunyip? Um, I would. I'm more than happy to use it as a purely, um, as say with the rapid evolution. I would use it in a game purely as a, a biological cryptid kind of uh, bio horror, and have it unrelated to anything else paranormal. It's actually just actual normal, bio, you know, natural science evolution going wrong and uh, causing havoc. Obviously, there could be things that, you know, there are obviously drivers to that, like, you know, pollution or uh, climate change and so forth like that. But I think having it divorced from Pentex or whatever group from whichever game is is far more weirder. Yeah, certainly. Uh, this could uh, create many issues in either the werewolf games, um, also, even just Hunter, this could be very interesting. You know, you set up, uh, you know, this group that consistently is hunting these supernatural creatures, and then you just have to deal with something that's actually perfectly natural, but out of control. Uh, and it's only because they are so keen for looking for the uh, the abnormal that it's these hunters that discover it. I can't really think of which other game it would fit into. I mean, it's a really good... You know, cryptids, I think, are a really big feature of Chronicles of Darkness, what with... Um... Publishing Chronicles with cryptids there. Um, I yeah, they're think... a, they're a pretty bog standard blue book anime, which means they can kind of fit into anything. Yeah. I mean, they're a mystery for mages to solve. They yes. might be some instance of infrastructure gone wrong, or there's like cryptids are fairly universal, so they could probably slot in almost anywhere except maybe a vampire game, unless you want to have vampire Bigfoot. Yeah, I think what you um, really want is to have a ghouled bunyip, because that would, bunyip. that's that's just. I mean, come on, you're going to be the coolest vampire on the block if you no, have no, a, no. a ghouled bunyip. You're a gangrel, so you use one of so you drink the blood of the bunyip and get it as one of your protean uh, forms. There, there you go. Or you're a gangrel and you've uh, frenzied too many times, and now you look like some weird crocodile duck billed monster. <laughs> that could be I'm it. Just envision like, like him being like, "Behold the fury of my true form!" And the other vampire is like, "What is this?" It looks kind of like looking at the pictures for Bunyips and how they're drawn. It kind of reminds me of um, of uh, the what was it? What do they call them in Changeling? The hedge, the the hedge walls or whatever they're called. Like so the, again, it's like how wolves and, and creatures get distorted if they walk into a verge that leads them into the hedge and they spend too long there. They they get, you know, they're, they're transformed and they're kind of like the, the version of natural creatures. So that could be, again, what a bunny appears. Again, it's twisted by whichever realm it's in. Um, it could be a creature that escaped through a Avernian gate, so again, like you know, something that didn't that from a, a true depth of the underworld. 
Maybe it's a creature from the, the, the weird reality of the Prince of a Thousand Leaves. He's always a fun guy. It's a beast. It's definitely a beast. It's a beast. Kill it. It's a beast. <laughs> I was going to say we could mention the fact that, you know, there's the whole Bunyip tribe in Wealthy Apocalypse that has almost nothing to do with the actual Bunyip. I guess we could. But, you know, that's because the Bunyip exist as natives to be slain so we can have white guilt in Rage Across Australia and... Yeah. So, okay, in... Let's let's take that a little little further because there were also um, bat shifters in South America. Yeah, the Camazots. The Camazots, and they got killed off almost entirely, except for a group. Or am I thinking of the uh, the pig? Uh, no, no, no. Both them and the uh, pig shifters uh, became uh, spirits, right? Well, no. Um, it's, it's not really what happened. Is um, like they got corrupted like yeah. there are hell boars and hell bat like something like hell bats or whatever and a lot of the bat spirits got corrupted and the black spiral dancers got a lot of their gifts like that's where patagia come they got the patagia gift um right so that they can like fly like they can glide rules yeah so it could be something along those lines that this is what's remaining of the uh the Bunyip's uh, totems or the spirits that they interacted with. Or or it could just be um, Matt, you're going to have to help me out here. I can never remember what they're called. Uh, the Fomori, but for the wild or for Gaia. Oh, Gorgons. Yeah, those guys. Um, so they don't like to um, if they're the wild spirits, they don't like to interact with uh, humans because we are too weaver-tainted. So they tend to possess um, animals or locations or plants or whatever. So if you're in Australia, you're not going to have, you know, a field mouse native that you can get into as a spirit. You're going to have some weird marsupial version. So this is a, a marsupial gorgon that is kind of a throwback to one of the uh, ancient megafauna of Australia just out there protecting the, the uh, wilderness alright cool so if that's it uh, let's move on over to our second and final Chronicles of Darkness segment Chronicles of Darkness what we're reviewing is Beast Conquering Heroes it's about heroes is it? It's about a lot of things. Well, okay, technically, it's night horrors conquering heroes. But as the uh, first chapter would tell you, this book, the concept behind this book is not to display heroes who boldly go forth and conquer beasts. While some of the heroes examined here believe that this is their mission, most do it for selfish reasons. Instead, those who take on these monsters are the heroes and creatures found within these pages are the ones that, who need conquering. Heroes and insatiable alike prey upon supernatural creatures, seeking them out to kill them to satisfy either a bloodlust or a hunger they cannot satisfy through any other means. Heroes looking for their next power fix tend to lose any vestige of the heroic demeanor in which they protect innocent victims, and instead throw followers and sycophants into the clutches of the beasts they hunt. Yeah, um, hmm. that's not true. In fact, most of the heroes in this book are more sympathetic than anything in the core book. It's I I don't know. I mean, the, this this like um, the book we were talking about before. It was written before Beast was finalized, 
So there's a lot of rules inconsistencies in here, but there's also a lot of things that just don't make sense. Like there's references to rules that don't exist. There's one of the, there's a new faction of supernatural creatures called the insatiables and most of their stuff doesn't even function properly. It's, it's a really weird book. Yeah. We actually did talk to two of the writers, I believe. And they mentioned that, uh, you know, most of this was actually developed with the original uh, version of Beast before it was corrected during the Kickstarter. Um, so because of that, there is a lot of inconsistencies, not just in the mechanics, uh, as Matt mentioned, but also in a lot of the story elements. They refer back to or um, contradict things. They either refer back to things that were in the original rulebook before things were edited, or they actually just kind of are seem to be things that were made up and contradict uh what's actually in the current existing beast core book which is which is a problem overall um and you know the the, the editing basically just didn't work out on this uh to clean up a lot of those mistakes so matt do you want to take it away and uh kind of just dive right into this Sure. the first chapter is a bunch of sample heroes and more stuff written about heroes and how they work and they actually move the goalpost a little bit here. Whereas in the Beast Core book, um, a quote-unquote heroic hero was just like they just stopped hunting or they went into, you know, helping people who were victims of beasts or whatever. They moved the goalposts again. So now a quote-unquote good hero is one who helps, who finds beasts and helps them find victims to feed on and teach. <clears throat> Oh gosh, um, that's that's no good. That's really not Wait, good. What? Yeah, yeah. No, and that, and remember that, like, basically everything up until this point is basically saying heroes are horrible. There are no good heroes. Heroes are the worst things ever. And except, and the only good heroes are the ones who help beasts find victims and feed because that's what beasts need to do. How the fuck is a hero going to do that if the if if weren't heroes good heroes also meant to be ones that had high integrity yes the idea is that if you're a high integrity hero you (laughs) are able to look at the primordial dream see the role that beasts perform and decide that the best way to help people is to give them to beasts so they can be taught Hmm. oh my gosh um so was that like why gaston led the uh, villagers to the castle in beauty and the beast is that is that what they're drawing from here it's so yeah, something weird. Oh god. I know, and and that's the thing. Like, so remember, like everything this book is everything this book has told you that heroes are horrible, all heroes need to be killed, and every single example of a hero in this book is someone who needs to be destroyed. The first hero in the book is a college student who's a media major, whose best friend turned out to be a beast and was victimizing her in her sleep and sort of gaslighting her and was really obsessed with her like had basically a shrine to her and she saw him saw his horrible form like saw that he was a beast freaked out and killed him that is the only beast that she has ever killed and she still feels guilty about it however what she is doing with her life is basically running a support group and a youtube series trying to like like finding out if there are other beasts and like outing them on the internet, sort of doxing them, like not really. There's something else that gets even more into that. But basically she's trying to help people and that she's using the money and stuff she gets from this, not for her own fame, but to actually help people. 
and they're like other heroes have realized that she is doing this and will sometimes use her as an intermediary to get information out to other heroes. But towards the end, it goes into that. She is very conflicted about this. She still hates what she did to her friend. She realized that he probably didn't know what he was doing, but she was just acting on instinct because that's all that she knew how to do that she had this driving force in the back of her mind telling her that she needed to kill this person and she hates herself for it. She sounds like a really reasonable person, honestly. Yeah. So clearly she... Except, except for the whole murder thing. So clearly she must yeah. be destroyed. And then the second hero we get is the example of a rather of a trend I really hate in this. There are a whole, 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 whole bunch of gay heroes who were victimized by beasts. Basically, this guy is, he's the children of two fanatical hunters who got lost in the hunt. Um, Like, he did not learn in school. He learned on the road from his mother when she was able to teach him. Um, Eventually, they dropped him off with his aunt to go on the hunt, and they didn't come back. And the aunt was like, okay, well... I'm going to try and give you the life you never had. So she enrolled him in school. But since he wasn't very educated, he was ridiculed and everything else. And when he turned 18, he was like, okay, screw this. I'm, you know, getting out of here. And his aunt was like, well, you know, either you go back to school or get out of my house. He got out of her house. And she, he roamed the U.S. doing odd jobs, hating himself because he'd been trained to kill, beat, kill monsters his entire life and couldn't really do that and he just basically made went around roaming as an independent sword for hire trying to kill things and almost getting killed and eventually he met ben and they met lunch at a diner they loved each other they were super happy great they you know started a relationship ben gave danny everything he helped danny grow into a person outside of the hunt but then he noticed that Ben started having mood swings. Ben would beat him. Ben would, you know, yell at him and do all sorts of things. And then Danny would have horrible nightmares. Then Ben would feel better. And one day when they were eating dinner, he noticed that Ben was being really angry. And then he saw that Ben was a monster and he killed him and he got stronger. And, but it's like he was being gaslighted and, victimized by his gay beast boyfriend and he killed him in self-defense i mean so this character in a vacuum seems conceptually okay yeah you know this is something you can definitely explore but as we're going to see as we keep going and i don't know matt are you going to go through all the different heroes or just kind of summarize i'm like i am summarizing them like rather extensively but because like i could go into more detail about them but like the next one is a guy who was who's a sociopath explosive expert got kicked out of the military for killing his co went to the amazon to help scientists go around he fell in love with another man who was one of the scientists and then one day the guy disappeared and the camp was attacked by a beast and he you know did horrible and he was able to fight the beast off and he awakened as a hero and then turns out oh look the, the beast he fought off was actually his boyfriend who was literally trying to lull him into a false sense of security so he would be a better meal. Okay, so that hero is less good in a vacuum, definitely. But yeah, it's really unfortunate because there's at least one other hero with the same basic story structure right in here. Um, Because there's that that woman as well. Uh, Which one? 
Oh, are there two women that uh, also have lesbian? No, no, no. That that one is different. No, but there, there's there's another woman who's Emily Esser, the Soul Eater, who's actually a proxy. And that, and this is where we start to away things like where we've like heroes who are also something else. Like she's got this whole unique power set to herself, where basically her backstory is she was. Um, apprenticed to somebody who was a, who was like a necromancer but then like his beast friend turned him into the guys who like rip souls out of dudes or whatever right right and like she is a proxima and her proxima power is that she is able to eat the souls of the recently dead and like vomit them up so she he was using her to gather souls for his research and eventually he started forcing her to um rip the souls out of the still living and which caused her physical pain and literally gave her bloody soul diarrhea. That's one way of putting it. No, it says that she was shitting blood. <laughs> oh, great. Um, I mean, that's, that's, you can explore that in your game if you want. But I think my point really was that it's just so many of these heroes have the same story over and over again. And, you know, it's very uninteresting for you as a reader to just be kind of reading the same thing. Uh, with with all these different heroes and not really getting a good diversity of ideas, but it's also just a, a problem with editing again in this book. Um, you know, the developer or the editor should have noticed, like, hey, these people keep you know presenting the same exact character again and again. Maybe we should get some uh, some changes in here and try to uh, you know just provide a better product. You know, a, a greater diversity in ideas. Well, okay, um, you mentioned lesbian mother earlier. Um, her lover wasn't the beast. Her lover was killed by a beast. And then that beast came to her home and threatened to kill her children as well. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a good hero in a vacuum. That seems unnecessary. No, like that's the thing. Like, and like, she's a heroic character. Like she's unambiguously heroic because she's fighting to save her family. And she has, mm. in- ah, that's good. on top of that, she has integrity seven. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, linking heroes to integrity. You guys already mentioned this when you reviewed Beast before, but linking heroes to integrity never made any sense. Yeah. We should just forget that. We should just get everyone's Beast book and just kind of like sharpie it out, just just cross it out. It just doesn't seem logical. How would someone's integrity lead them to become a hero? And Matt, a lot of these examples go back to the idea, like the idea that they they nixed with which was the in from the original draft of beast compared to the the, the corrupted version that heroes are created by beasts as yes in, by they, beasts doing something horrible either to the hero or in the hero's proximity that that gives them a breaking point and that forces them to become a hero yeah. but all of the examples you've given so far that you know you've gone through are there's a beast they victimize, threaten, etc., etc., etc. Said person, said person becomes hero. Understandably so as well. So, uh, yeah, like that's the thing that annoys me is that it seems like the first two chap, the first two bits where they were demonizing heroes were written by somebody who had only read the the book, and all the sample heroes were written by somebody who had only read the first draft. Mm. So you've got thing demonizing these people who are almost universally victims. But thing is that, like, some of them are just really bad characters. Like, there's one here that she's a reality TV star. Like, she goes out with a GoPro and basically documented her stalking this guy and because he was a monster and needed to be killed and put it out on the internet. 
and then like and has turned it into a web series because she got a producer who realized what she was doing and thought that was great but put her in touch with somebody who could cgi up the monster enough so that when she actually killed him nobody could tie it back to the guy she actually murdered and there's another person here who is literally just a hunter like as in works with um god i can't remember which one it is Oh, like a compact, so he's not out, you know, like yeah. getting Bambi or whatever. She, she works with, um, let me just name him off Lucifuge, Chiron Group. Chiron Group. Oh, okay. That's easy. Well, no, I, <laughs> I, looked, I got the document open, I looked her up. But, like, because she is able to find beasts, the Chiron Group wants her to find beasts and capture them so they can dissect them. But she wants to kill them because that makes her more powerful. But, like, mm-hmm. she is working with the Chiron Group. Like, if outside of her ability to sense beasts, she's just a hunter. Yeah. And there's one guy in here who is basically Dexter. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, he, he kills beasts because he's a sociopath, and he has a acceptable mortal persona as a doctor, and is actually genuinely a really nice person. He just kills beasts because that's an acceptable outlet to murder he's tried he's tried killing innocents but it doesn't doesn't give him the same rush so he doesn't kill them anymore that's hilarious because also like in discussion about how ways that you should you know possibly ways that you could run beasts to make it seem more acceptable is you should run beasts so that beasts are essentially like dexter you know they do target the horrible people to feed upon which makes what they do somehow socially acceptable it's just kind of funny that you know here we are with a hero who's as you say is basically dexter so uh, i don't know yeah like that's the thing that just completely flabbergasts me is that it's like he's a sociopath and he's murdered people but he realizes but like he doesn't do it anymore because it doesn't get him off like so all so the only things he kills now are things that are the actual bad people of the world like that's like outside of the vacuum it's like yeah he's objectively a horrible person but by his own twisted code of logic he's turned himself into probably one of the most heroic characters in the book he's batman no there's actually little there's actual literal um hero batman in here too she's a black all right (laughs) right she 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 set herself up as Hmm. quote unquote the light bringer and wears um a motorcycle helmet and leathers and has a police scanner and goes out and beats people up because her best friend is a beast and she negged her so hard that she no longer has any friends. Hmm. So what else is in this book aside from the hunters? Because they sound like great people. (laughs) We have a chapter of beasts and unlike hunters, there's not even a full page of of preface to them. It's just hey, sometimes beasts fight beasts. Hmm. And more often than not, it's because that beast has, in, has gained their inheritance and the other beasts have to fight them because beasts who have inheritance aren't really human anymore. Hmm. Bryce? Okay. In a book where, you know, beasts are, like, you're, you're setting up antagonists for beasts to fight and your first one is going to be a beast incarnate, what kind of creature do you think that they would set up for that? I'm gonna go with like some kind of spider monster. No, <laughs> it's a guy who buys out companies and runs them into the ground because he feeds off of the destruction it creates, and he has enough money that he's able to get away with it. 
Does he then run for president? <laughs> no. Nice. But no, like that's the thing is that he's his um myth is corporate ravisher, you know, business rapist. I would have gone with vulture capitalist, but okay. But yeah, it's like he also does a thing where he um like he literally does he basically does the apprentice where he hires where he gets a bunch of prospective people and you know forces them to debase and degrade themselves trying to get you know an actual intern position and then when he gets them down to two he just doesn't give either of them the job and then they kill themselves and that's how he feeds why do you even need a beast for this why is this even in the game you don't and that's things like like he's a horrible character like he's just a predatory business owner he doesn't need to be a beast not to mention he's a beast incarnate like he's supposed to be like an all-seeing ur monster that exists in the shadows of our collective unconscious and has created a myth that exists beyond himself not just yet another trump or whatever yeah the revenge fantasy of this game because the only reason why you'd make this individual into a monster is that you can i don't know get your rocks off killing him in a fantasy game and it's just it feels juvenile the next um guy is somebody who who underwent the merger who was a beast and like his dad took him out hunting and he you know fed through hunting and that was great for a long for a good long while and then he got married and hunting didn't do much for him and eventually the thing that i really hate about this character is his horror just got fed up and forced him to undergo the merger, and then he killed his wife and now exists as something that just looks like a Gauru farm werewolf. Like, the point of the merger is that you have to invoke it yourself, and part of that is by deconstructing your lair. This one is just his horror got pissed at him that he wasn't getting fed enough and merged with him. Right, right, right. And that's... So So obviously with the Chronicles of Darkness, there's a all these source books, everything's optional, all these like optional rules and everything and new ideas, but it just doesn't feel right when either, either by choice or by, you know, looking at a previous draft um, of, of beast, you've got all these contradictions in there, uh, you know, in the first source book that they ever put out, you know, shouldn't we like try to be expanding beast, you know, adding in a lot of new ideas instead of making mistakes or, well, I mean, rewriting in some ways could be good for Beast. But, yeah, it's just, it's really bothersome. Yeah. Um, the next, the, and like I said, it's just, it doesn't make any sense because, but it also kind of presents something different. Like the idea of that there's, a, that would be like an actual failure state for Beast, that if you don't keep your horror fed enough, it might take over your life. Like, and like, like remove you as a person. Like, that would actually be something horrifying. But that's not something that Beast has. Hmm. The next the next Beast is a uh, uh, young Irish kid, like, several hundred years ago. Um, was, a far- was a sheep farmer's son, but one day he went to market and they saw a ship and he wanted to get, and he wanted to, you know, go on the ocean and, you know, live forever. So he ran away from home. Um, got on the ship and eventually he awoke he found his horror and his horror was like a collector of secrets so he started 
collecting occult lore and eventually started like sacrificing crew members to try and you know discover more eldritch things eventually he just realized that he could not learn anything else you know as a human being but his horror could so he underwent the retreat and now it's just this horrifying octopus monster that exists in the primordial dream and swims through like the temenos and the shadow and all these other realms learning information and if you can find it and speak with it and give it something it wants to know it will talk with you and maybe give you some information it knows kind of cool but i mean so so first off he's murdering all these people to gain occult secrets but where where the lessons go is he teaching people lessons no he's just teaching himself stuff so that's just kind of bizarre right there I mean, but, you know, the fact that he's, like, in the primordial dream, swimming around, if you were able to get there... Well, no, it's like, like, it's like you can, you're... like, summon him and stuff, but, like, his... It's interesting, it's like, his ban is that... He's basically a spirit, so he has a ban, and that... And a bane. Mm-hmm. He must collect secrets, especially occult secrets, but he cannot leave a naturally occurring body of water. Like, or a manufactured body of water that's open to the sky, like a canal or an aqueduct. Like, if you can lure him into an, a... Uh, into a waterless area, such as be, like in a canal that's get blocked and drained, you can kill him. But like the, the idea is that like he, hmm. otherwise he can basically just swim away anywhere. So it's like someone, when I was talking about somebody else, I was like, so basically this guy is the crown, like the crown jewel of any mage chronicle. You want to find this guy and learn all of his secrets. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's certainly an interesting character and, uh, would be pretty cool to present in the game. Very, very bizarre. Um, I think it's. I think it's cool, just not as a beast. I think that's my yeah, conclusion but, but with that, it. That's, that's, it underwent the retreat, so it's not a beast. It's a spirit. Like, yeah. like that's the thing. Is like, yeah, that's true. Like once you undergo one of the like the only one that you're still a beast is when you undergo the incarnation, and. When you, under, when you undergo the incarnation, like if you undergo the merger or the retreat, you become something substantially different. When you undergo the retru- when you undergo the merger, you become a physical monster, more akin to like a, a mindless hunger destroyer or whatever. When you undergo the retreat, you become pure spirit. And the idea of the beast is that you're supposed to sort of be like both, but also not, and it really treads on werewolves' territory. And I don't really like beasts. <laughs> Yeah, gotcha. So are there any other beasts that we uh, need to talk about here in this section? Yes. Adam Cutler, the Silver Bay Serpent. He's a, he's oh, a yeah. guy who is, he inherited the family lighthouse and like he enjoys swimming and whatever. And he like eventually started, he awoke to his horror when he started collecting things left behind by people who had been killed by the sea. Most like he calls them collecting his names. So like their driver's license IDs or like the nameplates off of ships or stuff like that. And he's a beast incarnate. And how he incarnated is one time he went out on his boat and his, his horror led him to the middle of the uh, Atlantic ocean. And he just started swimming down deep and deeper and deeper. And eventually he found the Titanic, which somehow his horror sunk. Uh, and because his horror had sunk the Titanic, he incarnated somehow. 
I don't think that's how any of that works. And at all. And the thing is, is like it says in here, like, how are you supposed to use this guy? And the thing is, is that he basically lives in his lighthouse and micromanages the hell out of a single northeastern coast on the United States. Like a north a port town in the United States. The only way you can interact with him is if your chronicle like forces your beast party to go to that town and he will get pissed at them because he doesn't like having other beasts in his town. Yeah, there's some problems with that. Also, sink of that Titanic uh is dumb. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say that. Like it doesn't enhance your chronicle at all. Yeah, it doesn't add anything to it. It's just uh hey, here's a neato thing. Run yeah. with it. It's like, oh hey, by the way, uh Al Capone's a vampire in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't add anything to your game. That and, adds and you look, everything to the game. And then you look at his stat line, uh, he's got no ability to fight you at all. Like he's got no brawl, no weaponry, no nothing. He's relatively strong and dexterous. He has presence eight, so he's the sexiest snake man you've ever seen. No, no, no. See, the real ability to fight you was the friends that he made along the way. Oh man. So <laughs> he's all he's also got defense eleven and armor ten. So while he can't hurt you, you're not hurting him. He's he's George Bailey. The beast um, from It's a Wonderful Life. Everybody in this town that he lives in loves him and will, you know. No, they, 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 they don't really know. It's, it's really dumb. Like, okay, then I got nothing. <laughs> but what if, what, what, what are the lessons he teaches? Maybe he teaches great lessons. The ocean is dangerous, and if you fuck with it when there's a storm going on, you'll die. So swimming lessons. But maybe he it. also teaches people how to drive. Maybe he's a, he's a car instructor. And also eats you in your dreams. Okay, um, okay. next we have Bryce. There is a spider monster. It's one of the spirit ones. It it exists to find secrets and expose them to people. Because, like, you know, oh, I held a secret. Because apparently one of her friends held a secret from her and that, like, ruined her life. So she killed herself and now she's a spider monster. Wait, is she a beast or is she a geist or... She underwent the retreat, so it's just her horror and what remnants of her human memory remain. Okay. Um, the next one is Abistu has not undergone any kind of um, incarnation, retreat, or merger. Finally. It's Elvin Zane, the slimy lobbyist. (gasps) Okay, why is he a beast? Why do I need a beast for this? Because he feeds by basically finding people mostly conservatives forcing them to write laws that are against their interests and then outing them to watch them suffer. Yeah. You see actual lobbyists also feed by doing that. And it's by lining their yeah, they pockets. Just get a paycheck for it. No, there's, there's <laughs> an example in here of like uh, a guy who, okay, let me find this text. Wait, wait, wait. So, so is beast just jackass the jerkening or something? Cause I don't, I don't get it. You know, and, and like that's the thing, like they talk about like how like he's altruistic and he tr- he tries to do good for his society, but his need to feed and his Machiavellian schemes are actually hurting his constituency. And he blames that on other beasts. And that's how he's supposed to be com- come into conflict with him is that he blames all the other packs who live in his area for causing the damage that he does by basically running long schemes, trying to bring down the conservatives who 
live nearby him. And there's an example in here of um, like one guy who like he thought he was a genuinely nice guy and didn't want to bring him down. So he's like, dude, you don't want my help. It's like, no, I do. I hear you're the best. It's like, okay, this is what I'm going to do to, to keep my support. Like you're going to need to kill like his first test is to skin his pet dog alive and then eat its heart raw. If you're not okay with that, give me back my money now. So like he like forces them to debase themselves, do horrible things, and he'll keep the evidence so they can then release it to the press when he's done with them. That that may work one time, one time. Uh, Maybe I mean, it, 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 Chig, Chig, it worked for David Cameron. Remember how he fucks that pig? He did fuck that pig. <laughs> and then the last beast we have in here is um, a teenager that went got sent to a. Uh, summer camp for troubled teens and turns out and she was a beast and turns out one of her friends was a changeling and the changeling eventually was able to work through her issues by embracing her you know newfound supernatural nature and learning that she was you know a changeling and that was good so she encouraged jane to you know embrace her nature and then she incarnated and started eating campers and the changeling still works at the camp, you know, because her best friend is there and she tries to keep her predations to a minimum. It's like... And she only eats campers on, or, say, one day a year, perhaps? No, Maybe she... on she, Friday the 13th? No, she, she, no, yeah. she tries... She hates the... Uh, yes, I understand what you're doing there. <laughs> uh, okay, but... Sure, why not? Yeah, it's it's just like... One of the things, like, you know, beasts really, sh- like, why do they put beasts, like, oh, yeah, no, beasts and changelings get along just great. It's like, no, beasts and changelings are, like, opposite things. They should not be playing well together. But that's the last of the beasts. Finally, there's the last chapter of the book. <sighs> Insatiables. Yep, Matt, we've had some uh, fierce debates on this, haven't we? Yes, we have. So which of you is pro-insatiable? Neither uh, of us. Neither. <laughs> <laughs> we just argue about how why they're oh, bad, okay. and we have differing opinions. We'll get into that. So, Matt, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the Insatiables and uh, present like a couple sample characters to uh, drive our discussion here? Okay, Insatiables are for la- they're basically worse beasts. They are written almost if i didn't know any better i'd say they were written as a parody of what beast writers think we think beasts are because they are people who have had their souls eaten out by an uh, an unnatural horrible creature and exist only to kill people and feed their hunger they don't teach lessons they just eat um the difference between them and beasts is that beasts have horrors Insatiables have moments, which is the first of many, many insatiable-specific terms that I hate. What are moments, you ask? Well, they aren't, you know, specific fears. They're places where... They're memories of a time when the environment was dangerous. So it's like... One guy's like the soul of a volcano, or a particularly bad earthquake, or a tsunami, or a or a tornado, or a hurricane, or 
the dark and unending void of space. Didn't they already have elemental beasts in the main book? No. No? Okay. The the main book, it was um, hunger for power, hunger for prey, hunger for justice, hunger for destruction, or hunger for things. Okay. But the the belief of these insatiables is that they are the descendants of... They are the first children of the Dark Mother with something they call the Primogenitor, who is not around anymore. But some of them want to bring him back because he's even dark and more evil and more edgy than the Dark Mother and blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, like, the, the moments are the clashing faults... The Freezing Hells, which are the air elemental beasts. The Molten Earths, the Primordial Seas, and Void. Now, each of them gets special powers depending on which um, kind of moment they have. The Primordial Seas um, are strong, but not very willful and bad at social skills. Um, Freezing Hells are tough, but slow. Molten, molten Earths can light themselves on fire to deal aggravated damage to both them and the target. I want to point out that literally anybody else can also do this. So. Yeah. <laughs> Clashing faults have armor but a penalty to their defense. And Void can spend willpower to use one of the best powers they have for free. Yeah. Okay. Um, in a lot of ways, they're similar to Beasts. But not really. They don't have lair. They don't have lair dots. They can't get layers natively. So instead they have dens, which are dens. They're where they take their kills back to eat. Because the thing is, they still feed, but they don't they aren't subtle enough to actually feed without killing people or literally consuming them. They have to eat people to get their satiety. Um, in all other ways, they are like merged beasts. Um, one question, Mike. What do merged beasts without yeah. a lair rating get? I don't remember. Please uh, please re-educate me. Absolutely nothing. Oh, oh okay. They um, lose one hunger. They lose one satiety a day. Um, they can't, and they can't go into slumber. Without a lair dot, that's all they get. Okay. Now, they can steal lair dots from beasts by a really poorly explained mechanic by which they touch them and engage in an extended... Um... No, no, wait, that's something else. Okay, there's two ways that they can do these things. They can either touch a beast and then they engage in an extended um, roll against each other, but it doesn't give a time limit for the roll or how their target gets... Um or how their target, you know, is able to escape from it. So it just comes off as like the beast rolls until the insatiable rolls until they win against the beast. And then they take the beast over for like a couple of hours. And then they get to just force the beast to do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Sure. The other thing they can do is if, if they can manage to get into a beast's lair, they can take it over and steal the lair and the lair dots. Yeah. Sure. But it also costs them a bunch of insane... Like, they have to visit it once a day 
Otherwise, they start losing the dots. But for insatiables to do that, it costs them a bunch of satiety. So they need to spend a bunch of satiety every day just to keep their lair dots, which means they're killing a bunch of people. Yep. Ah, man, the mechanics of this are just not good. They also have the problem of that heroes do, where, like I said, they have to steal their lair dots and they also steal atavisms from beasts. And so for an insatiable to be a threat, they have to have jobbed a couple of beasts off screen before they meet the party. Yeah, so, I mean... The whole character creation mechanics of insatiables are just silly. They're not good. Uh, you should not have mechanics in there to steal player agency away. That's usually not very good. Uh, not good fun for a lot of people. Although there are some groups that are that will be okay with it. But just you gotta streamline, you know, antagonist creation. This is really a flaw overall with the uh, uh, both One World of Darkness and also Chronicles of Darkness that. You know they have uh, these these monsters and antagonists that just run off of the same exact character creation structure of the player characters. And any you know storyteller worth their salt just knows like oh just like I know like if I roll six dice that's usually pretty good pretty good dice pool to use. And they kind of just you know, form antagonists that way. But the you know expectation from this book that you're gonna have to keep track of like what abilities they steal from other beasts, maybe even player characters is really just not a good assumption for storytellers and just uh, you know a hassle for your game in my opinion you know there's a reason why D got rid of level drain for example in after advanced Dungeons dragon second edition because it was stupid it was it was a hassle for the players 3.5 has level drain what yes no with vampires Yes. No. Okay. And fourth other edition doesn't. That use negative and other creatures <laughs> that use negative energy. Fourth edition got rid of it. Fourth edition doesn't. Fourth edition made a good choice, getting rid of level drain. The yeah, other thing that insatiables do, and the primary source of conflict, okay, is that they can create schisms, and that's like for every month that an insatiable is in an area, killing and eating people, they they raise the schism in the area by one to a maximum of 10 as it starts up. And basically what it is, is the area not being able to deal with what an insatiable is. So it's disquiet. It is basically almost entirely disquiet, except rather than the people being, you know, rather than the people being disposed against the insatiable, they think the insatiable is the only sane person left and instead turn against everybody else. Yeah, it's it's opposite of the Promethean disquiet, basically. Yeah. Huh. It drives the community apart instead of driving the community against an indiv- individual. Right, and like it starts twisting things where like a molten earth insatiable will create nightmares in people where like they will basically come to the conclusion that the only way to save themselves is to burn their friends alive. Um, And the other thing is for every dot of schism in the area um the uh difficult the uh gauntlet in the local area drops by one so if a schism gets bad enough not only is everybody trying to kill each other the local gauntlet is zero Mm, not great no and another thing is that insatiables 
are not detectable by heroes. So a hero will come into an area, see that everything's going down, and will probably, you know, kill the nearest beast because I think the beasts are responsible. Okay, so these guys were added to the game to make hunters better? No, they're, they, they were added to the game to give a reason why beasts need to exist because only beasts are equipped to kill them, basically. Hmm. Like, no, you need... I mean, like... I mean, I meant to make hunters a better option story-wise. You mean heroes? Yeah, I'm sorry, heroes. Eh, more or less, but the thing that it's just really badly written because they're a really terrible justification for like, basically like, oh, the teaching lesson things didn't go over that well and people don't like it. Let's make somebody who's worse than beasts that only beasts can kill. Like, no, we have to let beasts stay alive so that they can kill this guy, this, this one specific subgroup of people who are even worse. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. But I mean, the other thing is that pretty much every um, World of Darkness game has like a, a tier three antagonist that's of the same basic type uh, as as Supernatural. So like in Vampire the Masquerade, Camarilla versus the Sabbat. Uh, when you look at Mage the Awakening, uh, you got all the different mages and then the Seers of the Throne uh, up top uh, that need to be need to be right. And the thing is that battled against. If winning. Beast had been written that way, I would be okay with it. But from its inception, Beast was always yeah. an asymmetrical game. It's monsters versus heroes, and they've they've stapled these on at the end, and they're not mechanically complete. They don't make sense, and they step on toes and. That they, they, there's no reason why any of these insatiables couldn't just be an evil beast. Exactly. Yeah. It it seems to me because they made the decision that there would not be any like global tier three, um, you know, conspiracy style beasts or anything. That they figured that they had to make this other similar but slightly different uh, evil beast uh, to to kind of fill that void in the game. And well, didn't really work out. Now, in addition, so in addition to you know being able to steal layer rating and create schisms, they have their own special subset of powers called Assurance. Assurant is Latin for hungry, so their powers are called Hungries. Sounds legit. And they're not really all that good either, just mechanically or because they don't really do that much. There's two that are worth noting. Um, Impossible Vista is the one that voids can spend a willpower to invoke, and it basically for, like forces people to think that they're trapped someplace horrible and dangerous and actually start taking damage, and they have to roll... They have to spend a point of willpower and roll resolve plus composure to um, escape the horrible nightmare. The thing is that to actually invoke it without spending a point of willpower you have to spend a dot of lair and two satiety which uh, you can't really get you know it's just like to use this power you have to it's like you lower you lower your lair rating you go down in strength and you have to go steal lair again for somebody else or if you're void you just spend a point of willpower and can use it for free for the rest of the yeah the other one they have is Laws of Man No Longer Apply, which allows them to spend a point of satiety and get a plus two bonus to all roles during which, to which being able to modify the laws of physics would assist them. 
So that's everything ever. Everything ever. Hmm. Not well thought out right there. And there's also this one, We Can See the Insides, where you turn your your target's skin translucent and they get sick because they can see their muscles. Except most people wear clothes. <laughs> I don't know. I have some pretty creepy muscles in my hands. But no, it's like, you have to make a resolve plus composure roll or gain the sickened tilt. A tilt that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. There we go. There are several there are several conditions and tilts this book in this book that you should gain or apply or whatever that just don't exist in any book I've looked at. Well, if it's not the core book, uh they're doing something wrong because they should always be referencing rules in the core book and not other source books. But even we actually checked uh, a couple of their source books and could not find this, so pretty sure it just doesn't exist. Nope. So let's just go over some of this insatiables because we're getting kind of off track here. There's the the fire insatiable yeah. is the authority who is just like he's basically a crime lord who has a werewolf pack at his beck and call because he beat their alpha and he is mas macho. Okay. And he and, and he, yeah, whatever. Um, then there's the blind man. Do you want to tell yep. him about the blind man or should I? Oh, you, you can do it, and I will then start to argue with you after you're done. He's an elder, he's some impossibly old legendary man who is always impeccably gra- dressed, but his clothes are slightly dirty. He's always walks with a cane and is blind and he he is an omen that for, presages the arrival of the progenitor who is trying to bring him about by shitting eggs out of his dick and if well, you I mean, eat eggs from his things. dick then you start shitting eggs out of your dick until you mutilate yourself and die Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm cool with that. That's fine. I probably wouldn't use it in my game as is, but, uh, you know, if that's what you're into. Well, the thing's like, it's it's completely superfluous to his character, and it's not really an insatiable power. Like, it's just a thing that he has that he does that's different. Like, so does this guy also still eat people? Yes. Okay. Does he only eat people who have the uh, the egg issue? Or... No, because he wants them oh, no. out there shitting their eggs because anybody who eats those eggs then shits more eggs. Wait, why would anybody eat? No. <laughs> what? Because they, like caviar. Cause they, cause they look like caviar. What? <laughs> yeah, it's madness. It's madness. Um, I think the real weakness with the blind man is that... Well... I, I think the real weakness with the blind man is that somebody read a uh, fanfic that they did not agree with and <laughs> decided to make an antagonist for their game canonical. Oops. He, he's, he sounds like he's an escapee from a Lovecraft novel. No, because I've read every Lovecraft story yeah, and they that. don't touch on that. Well, or if they do, they, they allude to it very obliquely. <laughs> well, it, he makes sex horrifying. But which is a Lovecraft thing. But the thing is, like, he doesn't really, he doesn't really fit as a beast antagonist. He's like 
a beast antagonist, and also he does this other thing that beasts really can't interact or deal with. It's like, there's no mechanics given to the eggs. It's just, if you eat the eggs, then you're going to kill yourself because you have egg problems. Like, you, it can't be healed, it can't be fixed. Mm. It's nothing that beasts can interact with. It's just this thing he's doing in the background while he's also, opposed, while he's also something that the player character should be opposing somehow. So if you have this thing that eventually makes you, you know, mutilate and possibly kill yourself. Do you have like a compulsion to feed the eggs to someone or like, I'm not sure how this spreads. You get super horny for a while. And then before you start shitting eggs. Okay. I just, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't understand what this, why this is in the game. I just don't get it. Okay. We're all equally lost. Maybe whoever wrote this guy into the game can uh, can write into the show to explain it. Oh, well, uh, Chris and I can ask him at World of Darkness Berlin. Don't you worry. There you go. There, please do. <laughs> and if you could record that conversation, I would love to have it on the uh, on the on a follow up episode, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Matt, do you, uh, we're, we're kind of running late here. Uh, do you want to just cover maybe like Null Sniper a little bit and then we'll uh, start to wrap up the okay, show? Well, it's like there's one that's just a girl who's cold, so she wants to be warm, so she hugs people until they die. And then there's one that's literally it from the movie It. It's, it, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a water clown. And then there's Null Sniper, who's the void beast, the, the void insatiable, who is an internet hacker who is really horrible and disgusting and they go into great lengths describing her smell and her acne and she's also special because she can feed over the internet without eating people but only at half potency and she talks in leet speak and she swats people to watch them get killed by cops and she's also trying to subvert a beast and take over their lair so she can upload herself to the internet and why does this book exist well, I mean, Internet Beast is an interesting concept. It kind of is. I'm not going to lie to you. And also the fact that she can feed without like actually eating people. That's a, a nice twist on it. But I mean, at that point, why would you well, not I just mean, make I it mean, a that's, beast? It's, yeah, it's, it's like... Yeah, precisely, like, precisely. It's supposed to be the one limitation of Insatiable is that they have to physically consume something. And sh- one of the five examples they gift they give is special and gets around that. And it's also just a problem because, well, I mean, this is the intent of the problem is that, oh, this uh, insatiable is feeding from across the country. How are we going to deal with this? But I mean. Oh, and she and she also creates schisms inside of Internet communities somehow. What happens when you lower the gauntlet on a web server to, ta- to zero? I don't know. Well, I think then you get uh, ghosts in the shell. Oh, uh... <laughs> uh... just, just just play Cyberbird and shut down the podcast. We're done. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, so I think we can all agree. Uh, this is not great. Would not recommend. I don't really want to talk about Beast again until something good for it comes so out. This is the final Beast so... segment that Darker Days will have. <laughs> Well, the thing is, is that I don't know. I don't know, man. I mean, I obviously would like all the World of Dragon stuff to be great, be really cool, very engaging. But Beast has just got so many problems. Well, the thing is that this, the sample heroes 
most of them are pretty good. The thing is that they're pretty good protagonists. Like, they are people who have been victimized mm. and have legitimate grievances and can rage against the machine. But they're not... They don't really fit in this... Like, they're sympathetic. They can be examined. They're, the characters can interact with them in ways that aren't just a monster to be killed, which is what this book wants them to be. All of the sample beasts are either don't need to be beasts or are so hyper-specialized that you can't interact with them in any way. And the insatiables are just superfluous. They don't need to exist. They're beasts, but worse when you could, when most people who read this book and just assume that beasts are the antagonists anyway, there doesn't need to be a, but worse. Agreed. Certainly agreed. All right, cool. So if that's it for, uh, conquering heroes, uh, I think we should just wrap up this yep. episode then. Eh? Sounds like a plan. All right, cool. Whew, we made it through. There's a very long episode. Got to do some heavy editing here, but uh, you know what? I think it was all worth it. And uh, if you want to get in contact with us, uh, of course, uh, we are Darker Days Radio. You can email us at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Tweet us at darkerdaysradio or go to our uh, Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. We also have our G Plus community, which still doesn't have a convenient URL because Google doesn't allow that. But you can check us out on Google+. It's cool. So I think that's it. Uh, we will have a bunch of World of Darkness Berlin content coming up, which is going to be pretty fun and cool. So uh, look forward to that in the near future. All right. Chig, Matt, Chris, wherever you are out there, have a good night, all right? Good night, everyone. Later, guys. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. Second and final Chronicles of Darkness segment. Do we have to? Uh, <laughs> I think we do. We owe it to our listeners. Oh, crap. Right. Okay, here we go. Okay, let's do this. I- I'm thinking I need to change, you know, my name, my uh, Darker Days name badge from official werewolf correspondent to official beast consumer. <laughs> like and the, the, the person good. who That's suffers good. for this. <laughs>